you here <laughs> hey man how yeah. are you thank you so much for coming after uh dealing with my scheduling oh no worries nonsense no here worries. A little bit. yeah i appreciate you being patient with that there we Thanks. fired the intern that uh, yeah. botched that one so <laughs> yeah man we uh went and saw the mars volta that night are you into mars volta at all uh, a little bit yeah yeah yep. how was your show it was amazing yeah. it was amazing yeah we talked about it uh the day after he almost died during the show <laughs> Like yeah, it was literally, a problem. Almost yeah. died during the opening well, there, yeah. act, which would have been yeah, a real yeah. unfortunate way to go yeah. for sure. A little too close to the lip of the stage, or no? I don't know. Flying a little too close to the sun, you know, that impending uh, Volta Rock was yeah. just too much for this <laughs> man to handle. Apparently, it was a, it was a wild night though for sure. Yeah. So anyway, thank you so much for coming, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Fucking AJ Dunning is in the house. Y'all know him as the guitarist from the Verve Pipe. He's done a bunch of stuff since them as well. Um, so really appreciate you coming in, man. Thanks for having me. Also, yeah. shout out to Joel for kind of hooking it up a little bit here. On yeah, hi, season. Joel. What's up, Joel? <laughs> um, so, man, I want to talk about a lot of things we were talking about okay. a little bit. Um, I'm a pretty big Verve Pipe fan from back in the day. You know, I, st- I mean, I still like the Verve Pipe, such as it is. But, um, you know, Villains was like, I was... Uh, I kind of talked about this with Joel a little bit, too. I was like 13, 14, maybe, something like that, 12, 13, um, when that came out. So it was just like, I was sort of like the perfect age, you know, where like, and I was, you know, I had an older brother who was kind of giving me music and whatever. So it was like that kind of like alternative rock or whatever. That's really what I came up on. Okay. And uh, I was just a massive fan of that Villains record after it came out. Um, I, I was thinking about it in the shower this morning because because <laughs> i was picturing there's like 13 year old ross in the shower trying to sing cup of tea at the top of my lungs <laughs> and cannot do you know what he what he says tea does that really kind of high note or whatever right, big yeah, note there yeah. which not a big deal anymore but at the time <laughs> it was reaching for that high b a la peter yeah, brady right yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so you know and uh even before that um I had the older records too, and uh, I was reading about uh, going through the Wikipedia a little bit and stuff, and mm-hmm. kind of refreshing my memory. But because I had the CD that had the early version of the Freshman on it, yeah, that Harry Chapin esque kind oh. of thing. Yeah. And apparently, mm-hmm. you, you can't get there. There was that you, you guys reissued it after without that version. We or did, something? yeah. Um, that track, as well as the two tracks that Brian Stout. Uh, the original guitar player had written for the oh, record. Oh, okay, okay. Part of that was due to um, the attorney that that was working with us at that time. Uh, and this was right after we had landed our management deal with Buttleman, uh, Doug Buttleman. Um, and it was suggested that in order to kind of keep Brian Stout, I uh, guess, legally at bay uh-huh. and not have him come after us after the fact gotcha. with his handout gotcha. or whatever. That was kind of the impetus for that. I think the freshman got struck from it because, well, for a multitude of reasons, it's the same reason that we ended up retracking it once we had originally recorded it with Jerry Harrison Yeah, for the villains record. Um, I, you know, the label realized that that was going to be, if there was a single quote unquote on the record, that was going to be it. Right. So, I think it was kind of a way to hedge our bets um, as well as just kind of tighten up the catalog, I guess, a little right, bit. Right, Does that right. make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, but it just irritates me because I had that CD and I have no idea where it yeah. is anymore. You know what I mean? Like right. I would love that I still had that in the collection somewhere. That's oh, like, I still have that phone around with the original case, gentlemen. Yeah, oh yeah, really? Collection, baby. Oh, nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, I, I honestly I think I probably have a spare CD of it at home. If I can track it down, I'll flip it. All right, down. hook yeah. me up, hook yeah. me up. But yeah, it would, it would have been cool to have still had that kind of in the, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah, a whole different take on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want to back up a little bit. Though before that and just kind of like talk about you a little bit like when did you start playing guitar what got you into it like uh you know who were you into well i was the earliest memories i have about music is that i was just fascinated by it um probably the earliest memory i have of it is uh when i was a kid before i was even in grade school um my dad was working like this weird early morning shift. He was an Oldsmobile guy. We're from Lansing originally. Right. And I have a distinct memory of the Peter, Paul and Mary song, leaving out a jet plane, mm-hmm. playing in the kitchen while we're all eating breakfast before he split for, for work. Um, and yeah, for the, from then it was, it was just basically whatever was around, you know, the either record collection that my folks had or relatives that we would go and visit, I would totally forego any family thing and immediately rush to the den and pilfer, yeah. pilfer through the records yeah. and yeah. do all that. And then in um, when I was in fifth grade, I started playing trumpet in school. Oh, okay. And I did that all through school. And it wasn't until I think I was 11 or 12 years old, um, a little context, my dad used to bowl on Fridays. So Friday night was mom and AJ night, and we'd sit and watch TV together. And one night during a Odd Couple episode, Roy Clark was on the show. And I knew who Roy was from Hee Haw because my grandfather was a huge fan. Yeah. Every Saturday at 5 o'clock, the world would come to a screeching halt. <laughs> he'd be in his lazy boy watching Hee Haw. Yeah. So I knew who he was. Uh, and on this particular episode of The Odd Couple, he played Malaguena. It was an old Spanish piece. Okay. Uh, and the clip's on YouTube if you ever want to dig it out. But I was just floored by it. And by that time, I was already a a huge Beatles fan, loved old Motown stuff. Um, So that's kind of what prompted, hey, I want a guitar for Christmas kind of thing. So (laughs) got this beat up acoustic guitar. I dinked around with it for maybe three, four weeks and got really frustrated like every first timer usually does. Ended up in the closet. Uh (laughs) That following summer first year of junior high school we had a guitar class as an elective oh wow so there were all these guys kind of floating around this section of the junior high school that everyone you saw had a group of girls around them and <laughs> 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 eh, maybe some of that wouldn't be too bad you know so obviously that's not really why i wanted to pursue it but it, and had i i would have been a singer or a bass player right you know? <laughs> but um uh, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what got me into it. Um, yeah, cool, and then cool. migrating into the electric a little after. Right. So you started learning Beatles songs and stuff first. Actually, for me, it was it was Kiss and ZZ Top oh, and well, Rush. Yeah. Nice. Those oh, three yeah. bands. Yeah. Well, and the Budokan record. Yeah, you know, yeah. My first electric I bought, I ended up breaking a little E string on it straight mm-hmm. away. Didn't realize that you could just go and buy one. Oh, <laughs> you know. So I ended up yeah. learning how to play the entirety of the Budokan record, just rhythmic, you know, rhythm guitar yeah. stuff. Uh, 
you know, would sit and do that for hours with the turntable needle back and forth. Right, you right. know, yeah, so, yeah. That, that, well, that's what I was doing, but it was with CDs and it was with right, shit he, like the Verve Pipe. You know, right. I learned how to play a lot of those songs mm-hmm. on guitar. You know, well, probably not correctly, but doing the same sure. thing where you're like doing it by ear, right? Kind of like, yep. okay, I'm pretty sure that's a D. <laughs> Best way to go <laughs> you know? about it. It really actually is. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, yeah. And now it's like it's cool, but like you can learn anything on YouTube or whatever. And that's why kids are so good now. Man, what but, a resource to have yeah i know i was like we joked about it on here i used to have to you know schlup my guitar down to the music store and Mm -hmm. sit in the little room with the weird dude for a half hour he (laughs) teaches me hendrix licks and stuff or whatever yeah fortunately for me uh i had two neighbors that both played oh nice so uh the one who was a little closer to my age we would sit and kind of trade stuff back and forth things that we would figure out right of course he'd pick up on it right away and i'd stumble around like a nitwit with him, trying to figure this <laughs> stuff out but yeah yeah well practice you know wins every time practice right. wins over talent every absolutely. time absolutely you know? yeah with me it was uh i you know my older brother who was playing in all these bands and stuff so i was like kind of like tagging along with that and trying mm-hmm. to like pick up everything i could from those guys who yeah. were four or five years older than me yeah you know do, um do you know rick beam I know the name. Okay. He said he's met you a couple times. I is wasn't it sure. Yeah. B-E-I-M? It's, yeah, B-E-H-M. H-M, okay. Yeah, yeah he, the, the name is familiar. He I plays in cover him. bands all over and stuff. I think he's done some good Anyway, it was like, that was like that. He was around and there was those groups and stuff. I wasn't sure. Oh, okay. Him, so, all right. Yeah. Um, anyway, though, so um, did you start with like, I, you're kind of a Strat guy, right? Do you, I, do you, I don't know why, but I think of you as a Strat guy. <laughs> yeah, I, well, funny story. Um, the first real guitar that I got was a '72 Strat, and that's that's the one that's like you can you see it in the villains and the photograph videos. Oh, okay. That guitar was actually given to me by a friend of mine. Dang. Um, it used to belong to her brother, and her brother was a year older than us, and he had graduated and gone to some really hardcore christian reformed college mm, calvin uh no it wasn't calvin i think it was i think it was uh, even more hardcore. Uh, i'll hold my comment but yeah, yeah probably yeah. undoubtedly a little more stringent than than calvin yeah. was um so he was away that entire year and when he came back from school he was under the impression that it was one of those tools of the devil kind of thing uh-huh. wanted it out of the house <laughs> Uh, fast like a forward. 72 strat. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this would have been, you know, I graduated high school 81. So a little before the whole vintage guitar thing really kind of got out of hand. But yeah. So one day I went to go pick my friend up. I was taking her to some open house that we were going to. And she got to the car and she's like, oh, wait a second. I have something for you. I'm like, okay. So she goes in the house, comes out with this guitar case. And I knew straight away what it was because I'd played it before. Right. And so she's like, yeah, my brother wants this thing gone. Do you want this? <laughs> and I kind of stammered around thinking, do I want this? No, I, you know, I'm not going to take his guitar. And she told me the story and I'm like, I, you know, I appreciate it. I, I just, I can't, you know, yeah. it wouldn't be right. Yeah. And she said, well, just open up the case and play it. So you open up the case and there it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, yeah, well, I mean, if you're sure, yeah, twist my arm a little further. Right, so right. the first thing I did when I got it home 
because I was an idiot, was ripped it apart and took a chisel to the inside oh, of it no. because I was going to stuff three humbuckers in it because oh, no. I had it in my head. I wanted it to be KK Downing or yeah. something, which, you know, which is fair, which yeah, <laughs> yeah. At, the, at the time, probably yeah. not the dumbest idea, yeah. but in hindsight. So, right. But yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of the workhorse. I mean, all through the bands that I played with throughout the eighties, I did the cover thing where you're setting up in a club with a band playing you know, four or five nights a week, yeah. four or five sets a night yep. kind of a thing. And yep. did that forever, you know, all through okay. the eighties. Okay. Know? I did not know that. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, well, I mean, that's probably why you're so good though. Cutting your teeth doing that. That's uh, I, don't about, know. You know. I don't know about that, but I got pretty adept at getting yeah. snuck into the back end of a bar because <laughs> I wasn't old enough to be yeah, in, I was the, say, in those places. Been pretty young. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did a little of that my own self. I always had to get freaking the big M's written on my mm-hmm. hands and stuff, you know, at right. the time. Or stuff. sometimes would have to call one of my folks and have them kind yeah. of sit yeah. there and watch. Yeah. Right. Give permission for you to yeah. be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. You still got the strat? Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. I do. Yep. Did you get that third pickup in it or did you end up putting I had a hum single, single setup in it for a while, uh, but I went back to singles and I had a, I actually have like pieces of foam stuffed into it. So right. it's not a little, that's not quite so resonant. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. It's still there. I don't, I rarely take it out. Not that it's worth anything, but just the sentimental value of it. In fact, when, uh, when the first pipe was on the road, this would have been, I want to say 95. It was still the van and trailer days. We played a date in South Carolina someplace and got done doing the show, packed up our gear and stopped at a, at a truck stop to fuel up our, our production guy and the drummer and myself. And unbeknownst to us, he'd left the truck running, as you would a diesel, I suppose, go inside the thing and and buy jerky or whatever yeah. for for late at night yeah come back and there there's a truck being driven off by somebody stolen oh, Jesus. stolen <laughs> so we immediately rush back inside the gas station truck stop whatever and call the cops turned into a, like an all-night thing and at six o'clock in the morning cops had found the truck Damn. yeah the uh the only thing taken out of the vehicle was our tour manager's laptop but selfish me the only thing i could think about with this was this damn guitar Guitar. you know so yeah Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't get out a whole lot any longer yeah well i mean there's something to be said about that guitar that's your guitar right the the sentimental value of it or it's like yeah you could sell it for what a couple grand maybe but it ain't worth you know like getting rid of your guitar you know (laughs) every freaking dent on it from stage (laughs) when i got the thing it was uh there was like one little piece of uh, arm rash over the back upper bow. Right. Subsequently, there's nary a lack of finish on it anymore, <laughs> yeah, except yeah. for the back. But yeah, yeah. that's amazing. I love yeah. that. I love yeah. that. Um, so, how did you? I guess I'm I'm a little fuzzy on like I guess the history of the Verve pipe, like how it started. It's like there's this thing where it's like east lansing or grand rapids or even grand haven or kalamazoo yeah Yeah. so i'm a little like and i think it's not just me i think it's a little fuzzy and how the band came together and how you ended up getting into it yeah i don't know that the band ever put any stipulation on where it is we were exactly from but truth be told probably east lansing more so than any other location so that is accurate i guess mainly from the standpoint that once we uh started going out and playing regionally uh we ended up hiring a couple guys and rented a house and it was Uh, in east lansing so okay yeah kind of base operations we would rehearse down there when we weren't doing it in grand rapids initially 
Were people uh, going to state and stuff, or was it just uh, Donnie? Uh, Donnie went to state. Okay, I don't know if he had graduated at the time when we started working together. I think he had already. Okay, um, and Doug, who joined Corella, who joined the band later, uh, was going to Central, and I know that he graduated through their percussion program. But gotcha, gotcha. Um, history of the band uh, on my end. Um, in 87, I joined the Mick Furlow band. They were a Saginaw band. And I guess we were considered kind of a pseudo alternative rock cover, well, what was college radio cover band then. Right. And they had put out a original record. And uh, the drummer in the band was Donnie. Oh, okay. And as it happened, Donnie and their guitar player, Dean Vanston, they were leaving to go form a band called Water for the Pool. So uh, they and Dean were both being replaced by myself and the drummer, a guy by the name of Brad Silverthorne. But it turned out that Brad wasn't ready to leave because he had given a two-week notice to his band that he was working with. So I ended up working with Donnie for a few weeks over Christmas of 87. All right, all right. Um, so that's how we kind of got to know one another. So I worked with those guys until about 89. Ended up moving to Cincinnati to work for a lighting company that a couple friends of mine were putting together. And I ended up doing that on and off in Cincinnati and then a, a stint in Atlanta for a year working with a band and then back to Cincy. Okay. Uh, after about a year upon my return to Cincy, I was getting bored, just looking for something to do. So on a total whim, I happened to reach out to Donnie and ask him, hey, is there anything going on in Michigan? Oh. And as it happened, he was like, yeah, we're contemplating firing our guitar player, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you'd like me to, I'll send you some material because we're going to be starting auditions. So I learned what I could, what he had sent. And um, I drove up November of 92 to audition for those guys. And it wasn't until March of 93 where they actually gave me the job. <laughs> And depending on who you ask, it was either because, A, they were worried about any kind of retribution from Stout because allegedly he was a bit of a loose cannon. Okay. And Donnie was rooming with him. So uh. that whole mess. And I'd also heard, too, that uh, a couple of the guys in the band didn't really like the way that I looked with my leather coat and long hair kind of a thing. So and, That's the rock star look. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but um, I almost ended up taking a job with another band, uh, which I'm thankful that I didn't. Yeah, it, yeah. It was a show band that was based out of South Carolina mm -hmm. that a friend of mine was playing bass for. And it was ridiculous money, but it was just a soul-sucking gig. You right, know? right. So, And by that point, I was kind of tired of playing covers. I was looking to do something uh -huh. a little more original. And one of the things that really impressed me about the Verve Pipe were, was the fact that they were playing originals interspersed with covers. Yeah. But in a club like Rick's Kalamazoo, when they played originals, it seemed like the crowd became more attentive and they were actually singing along to the stuff. And I yeah. kind of thought, eh, maybe these guys are on to something. With right. This. So right. between that and, you know, and the opportunity to work with Donnie again, who I have a lot of respect for as a musician and a writer. Right. Yeah. You know, that, that really kind of was the kick in the pants that I needed to chase nice. that. Nice. So, yeah. so they were already kind of like going and doing the thing. And then you got, you got it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah. Well, and as it happened, water for the pool, um, Dean Vance and their original guitar player, he left and Brian Stout joined. 
And Water for the Pool subsequently ended up doing gigs with Johnny with an I, which was Brad and Brian's band. Oh, okay. So I think both camps had kind of grown tired of the respective others within uh, their bands, and they decided to join forces. Right. And that's kind of how that got started. Gotcha. So, the rest yeah. is kind of history, as they yeah, say. Yeah. yeah. Nice, nice. Yep. That, yeah, no, that's awesome. Like I said, it was always like a little like unclear of like you know like <laughs> yeah the, the, yep. the history of it mm-hmm. so did you guys go like i mean you had how did you get like into the studio i guess like i don't know what i'm trying to say like you, you had songs i mean like putting it together like was it like we need to book this or was there like a producer that was like coming to you and being like we want you guys to come in and do these songs well if you're referring to the pop smear record when when i joined uh there were a handful of songs that either we were performing already okay that appeared on that album or it was writing in progress kind of stuff so and that's the first record you're on correct technically the second the second indie album yeah um so yeah for that record the process was kind of already underway so and we were basically self-producing it and funding it ourselves through, Uh through gigs um and that i think that got wrapped up I want to say beginning of December, we finished the record and then we're in a mad rush to get it mixed and mastered. So we would have it available for an upcoming show at the state theater that that was like the first time that we had booked that venue on our own. Yeah. So it was a little frightening, you know, not really knowing who, if anybody was going to show for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, And it, it went swimmingly well. And in between that time, I want to say, I'm a little fuzzy in the time frame. It was either end of October or November at some point. We ended up um, we ended up going to Japan oh, as part of there was an old uh, it was like a battle of bands thing that Yamaha and Ticketmaster were involved with through the old magazine Musician Magazine. Okay. So that summer we had two guys that were working uh, with us at that point, and they had booked us into what we initially thought was just kind of a showcase gig in Chicago at Lounge Axe. Well, when we got there, we realized it was a battle of the bands thing. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. none of us were keen on that. Yeah. That whole music is sport yeah, competition yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, none of us were really into it. So subsequently, and ironically enough, we ended up winning yeah. that first round. Second round was in Detroit at Pine Knob. Oh, shit. Third round was in um, Dallas. And we ended up winning the American leg of that. Okay. So our band, in conjunction with bands from around the world, the UK, Australia, the Philippines, Mexico, Canada, we all conversed in this um, resort um, that was, it was a resort for Yamaha employees, kind of like a club med. Interesting. In in a little town called Sumogoi, which was... Uh, we ended up taking a train from Tokyo to this resort, and it was probably a three-hour train ride. So right. essentially out in the middle of no place, you know, for a week we were there. Oh, damn. Um, so a lot of drinking, yeah, a lot of camaraderie with some of the other <laughs> yeah. bands, yeah. and very little in the way of, like, rehearsal time or, right. or anything of that nature. So yeah. how did you uh, – this might be a random question nobody cares about but me, but how did you get your gear there? Um, it was all rent stuff. It was all rented back line. Yeah. Um, we brought, 
you know, guitars. Yeah, okay. Um, I brought a couple. I don't think Brian brought anything. In fact, I think he played my Strat. Okay. Yeah, he was playing my Strat during that time. Um, and as it turned out, to one of the judges um, for the contest in, in Japan was Doug Buttleman, who later became our manager. Uh, and Doug was a former Yamaha A&R guy. Okay. You know, kind of a, a public relations guy. Yeah. That's probably the better way to, to point it out. Interesting. But, All right. Yeah. So a small incestual little thing. Yeah. You know? So did you guys win the big win the big we, prize? We did not. We came in second. <laughs> okay. They uh, we heard later that the judges actually liked us better than the band that won, which was a Japanese duo. Okay, but I think part of the problem was one of the grand prizes was a car. And I don't think they wanted to pay the cartage to ship it to the States. <laughs> so we were happy just, you know, just yeah. for the experience of, of doing course. it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Gus Dudgeon, who was uh, Elton John's producer on like ah. those old classic Elton records. Okay. He was a judge. Uh, Bill Bottrell, who was a famous producer, he did... God, he worked with everybody from uh, Michael Jackson to he did the Thomas Dolby Aliens Ate My Buick record. Okay. Right. Um, he was a judge. So that's awesome. Yeah, it was really yeah. interesting. And Rupert yeah. Hine, another okay. producer. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. So, so at this time, you guys got some like. I don't know. People are interested. There's producers you were working with. This uh, Doug Bottleman guy. Talking about yeah, that it. and you know some of the write-ups that we were getting on a regional level yeah. uh, through either Musician Magazine or uh, I guess what would have been considered some of the uh, I guess the indie publications at right. that time were kind of taking notice of us a little as well. So right. yeah, sweet, sweet. Yep. So, what, you come back to the state, start at this time, the Pops Me record's done and out. Mm -hmm. You guys are back here thinking about a new record, were you touring for a little bit, or like how, how to... We essentially took a good portion of 94 off with okay. the impetus of let's write and try to kind of tighten up what we had as mm -hmm. a band in order to get signed. That was kind of the goal. Right. So, there, yeah, there was a summer there for a good at least three, four months where almost daily, um, I was living in Grand Rapids at the time. Uh, I'd moved back from Cincinnati and uh, Brad and I would jump in either my car or his car and drive to Lansing every day. Okay. And I don't know who thought of this, but all the Lansing bands used to rehearse at the storage space up in DeWitt. Um, so yeah, in the middle of summer, yeah. we're sitting in the storage locker <laughs> yeah. with the door shut yeah. ungodly high for yeah. hours right. to do this stuff. I, yeah. you know, no exaggeration, sometimes 10, 12 hour days, yeah. you know, yeah. working on like a chorus of a song right. kind of a thing. So yeah, it was, uh, it was boot camp to be certain. Right. So we played very few shows during that time. Um, and then subsequently again, got out, you know, we're playing, that yeah, was the great thing about Michigan at that time. You know, all these college towns within mm -hmm. such close proximity to one another, you drive an hour, play a show. Right, know? right, right. So when we weren't writing, recording, we were, you know, schlepping gear in our mm -hmm. respective vehicles to go do these club dates. Gotcha. You know? And this is the material that would eventually become the villains, right? Y yeah, for the most part, and, and, it, and as well as some stuff that just – obviously ended yeah. up falling by the yeah. wayside sure yeah you know? it's like the way you're talking about it. i'm like oh man now it's like 
kind of wouldn't maybe give anything to do that now. Just play guitar 12 hours a day. Yeah, you know right. I mean? Yeah, like, just to dig like, into the work of it. Yeah, sure. it's like, oh, yep. man, you're in a shitty storage space and mm-hmm. eating fast food and everybody smells. But I mean, like, yep. god damn, you know, yep. like that's the all there for a, uh-huh. for a singular purpose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just to be able to deep dive into that material like yep. that is just, you know, it's crazy awesome. So yeah. that was kind of like I'm glad you're talking about it because that's another one of my questions was kind of like I was curious, like what the writing was like for and you've already described some of it for four villains in particular you know i was just kind of like wondering like what your process was like was brian coming in with songs that were complete or was it just kind of like hey i got an idea was everybody throwing stuff at the board it was a little bit of both i think collectively donnie was probably more prone to having a completed demo together okay but this predated us getting a publishing deal and I think it's pretty prevalent with a lot of bands that once they discover that the bulk of the money is not in touring, it's not in merchandise, it's yeah. not in record sales, it's in publishing. Right. We fell victim to the same thing that every other band does in that situation. And okay. uh, as time went on, the demos became more and more fleshed out. Gotcha, to, the, to gotcha. the point where you were basically left having to interpretate the writer's original Okay. Intent of okay. it. So, but yeah, initially it was it was more of a roundtable kind of thing, um, for better or for worse. Um, yeah. You know, where people are interjecting ideas or saying, hey, I've got this idea, just came to me, can we do something with it? It yeah. was yeah. It was a little bit of a mashup of all of those things initially. Right. Yeah. And I know it is like, it is this thing like in the music business where it's like, you know, like, obviously bands have sued the shit out of each other up and down mm-hmm. like you know like who who wrote it like what does that mean right you know like a, a, the drummer can contribute half of the arrangement to the song but well i wrote the lyrics and the chord progression so i wrote it and it's kind of like we you know, definitely got up our own ass with that scenario did you yeah, yeah. absolutely yep yeah and that's and that's too bad i mean you know famously queen you know got into it about that and broke up for five years over it or whatever and then that was a big part of them getting back together was (laughs) and then you have bands like rem that you know did a full split across the board because i guess their mindset and i wouldn't want to speak for any of those guys but supposing their mindsets spoke to yeah we're all here for the same reason yeah well and you could see these patterns when bands break up almost all the time it's about money so right. like if you try i mean my favorite band's tool you see all the tool stuff there mm-hmm. they're split four ways doesn't matter who does what whatever you know yep. like who contributes what this is for fame money women yep. it's one of those three it always is <laughs> yep. it yep. always you is. can share all those things at the end of the day that's right <laughs> well there's that end of it too you know i guess it just depends on how autonomous you want to come across yeah because i was looking at it uh you know obviously i, I went back through uh the villains record and mm-hmm. the couple ones after that too yeah. but um and i'm looking at it and you know like uh, i never really paid attention before i didn't care but it was you know like it was basically like all songs written by brian vanderick except for like two where you were like a co-writer or something yeah. or even it might have just been one even or donnie maybe it was one or something uh, donnie had written some stuff that ended up appearing on the last two rca records that we were involved with together uh the self-titled or the one that people always refer to as the frog record yeah yeah and then the album after that which was underneath yeah but i have a track on the villains record and uh the frog record gotcha yeah and those were rights where as far as penny is poison is concerned i had 
I had the music for it and I had a vocal melody for it that oh, I just tracked okay. as a okay. guitar part, flipped yep. it to Brian and said, if you feel like doing anything with this, gotcha. you know, gotcha. here's this. What's incidentally, it's my favorite song on the record. Oh, thank you. I didn't know that, you know, not that I, you know, it's great that you wrote that one too. I had no idea back in the day, didn't care about any of that, but that was always my, it's like a sleeper song on that record. I feel like, and it was always my favorite. And, yeah, you know. that's nice to hear. Thank you. I'd always hoped that like maybe a, uh, like an Americana artist would maybe attempt to cover it. Oh, okay. Like, that would be it, cool. It, it, yeah. It's almost lurching towards that that sort of genre but, interesting and as yeah. it happened uh when we started tracking that record or that song it didn't have a bridge in it uh, and that was jerry's suggestion to, yeah, i think this song needs a bridge so yeah. i went away that evening and came up with the the b minor turnaround thing and right told is that doug, with a little organ solo yeah this? and yeah. i mentioned to doug i said this is an opportune moment for right. you to kind of get some real estate on this album yeah yeah um, and I had that solo's killer, and I'm a huge fan of just organ zones in general. And yeah. That was actually one thing that I, I like about the Verve Pipe is there was, like, keys in it, you know, whatever, Rhodes and organ and mm -hmm. something. It wasn't really popular at that time. You it know, wasn't. most fans were very grunge, you know, wouldn't have that kind of vibe to it. I think overall, I mean, us coming into that kind of post-grunge thing, mm -hmm. if you listen to the Pop Smear record next to the Villains record, I would argue that the Pop Smear record is far more representative of what that band was actually about. Oh, okay. Um, it, the Villains record was kind of designed to be listened to like, this is a band set up playing in front of you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Minimal overdubs, minimal studio fuckery. It was yeah. just real kind of straightforward take it for what it is kind of a thing yeah well where it sounds though yeah. where um pop smear was definitely more of a kitchen sink kind of a thing uh, okay and subsequently the frog record yeah. was kind of a knee-jerk reaction to that right. too where That's we just let Beinhorn yeah. go and right, right. kind of get nuts with some of the production yeah. standpoints of it Gotta gotcha. say, Pop Smear is an all-time great pun and an all-time yeah, great record. Great, great yeah, record. a little That's filthy. So well yeah. done. Yeah. So well done. Yeah. 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 But that was... Uh, actually, I th I want to say the name was derived from a list of potential band names before the verb uh, came to nice, yeah. nice, nice, nice. Yeah. And yeah. Um, in fact, we ended up naming our LLC Elemental Pop. Oh, uh, okay. Kind of as a yeah. another ill-fated pun <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. yeah so i mean uh, and again like and playing through so first of all it's interesting uh now you know for me as a listener and a fan to go back through something like villains that i played to death on cd when i was mm -hmm. a kid and hearing it now and i talked to joel about this about his record too he's you yeah. know like having made a ton of records and you know a much older musician and stuff now like hearing things so differently oh absolutely you know like it, it's crazy i'm like wow these tones are it's like it's different than i remember it but it also i want to say it very much holds up because there's other stuff that you do that and i'm just kind of like this sounds like shit <laughs> you know like i can't believe this is on a major label or there's, something for my taste there's a few tracks on that record that are a little cringeworthy. Oh yeah, yeah. You want to name? You want to name? <laughs> you well, to. cattle would be one. Actually, I never liked barely either, and I'm not a big cup of tea fan either. Oh okay. Cup of tea oh, was for me. That was kind of. It was an opener. Uh -huh. Kind of that anthemic fodder kind of thing. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. and I don't. 
again, I don't want to speak for anybody. I don't think that Brian would quibble if I were to say out loud that I don't think it's one of the better things he's written. Yeah, okay. But that guitar lick is that that was one of his that's licks. Brian. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. Brian. I'm yeah. solely playing rhythm mm-hmm. stuff on that. Right. Yeah, and that was again, there's little Ross with his Les Paul going. You know, yep. learning those licks against that open <laughs> yeah. E string thing. Yep, yeah, yep, that's that. uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's the stamp of Brian Vanderark. Oh, okay, and a great guitar player too. I right. don't think he would ever give himself the amount of credit that he deserves. Oh, okay, for okay. his capabilities as a player. Well, I was going to ask about that too. This, you know, there's a lot of things I want to talk about, but that is like I was curious how much guitar he did play on that record, or if you were doing a lot of it, because there's a lot of bands that do that kind of thing, you know. Where well, on the, the on the villains record, um, I think it was probably you know the traditional rhythm part, lead part, where we're doubling rhythm tracks. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a thing. Uh, any solos that are on that record, with the exception of, I guess, if you call the intro to Cup of Tea a solo, which it kind of pseudo is. Yeah. Um, but the rest of it was me. With the Frog record, I want to say Brian played on two tracks. Okay. And they're both like at the beginning of Half a Mind, that mm-hmm. plaintive intro. Uh, and then one other track, and I, it's I'm drawing a blank on which one it was, and that was kind of by design. That was Michael Beinhorn's idea to kind uh, of limit Brian. Just I just want you concentrating on lyric writing yeah. and performance once we get to it. So right. I ended up I spent a lot of time with Beinhorn yeah. as yeah. a result of. Gotcha, and I definitely want to talk. Yeah, we can get about back him. Into that. Yeah, uh, back what I was saying with like, a, and this ties into two. I was thinking about how, how, and who was writing and whatever. Because there's actually one thing I noticed about villains was there's a lot of space too, mm-hmm. where it's like you know a verse is like just drums and bass with some right. atmosphere stuff like this, and I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, like. Yeah, you can say, you know, what this guy wrote the song or not, but that doesn't happen without the whole band. Like, I would agree figuring that. that out. Yeah. And that's why it's always this, like, gray area to me that I don't, I'm sure it irritates a lot of drummers and bassists and guys that have these ideas and stuff. And it's like, oh, you don't get counted as part of the, you wrote the song, you know? So you get well, what I'm saying? Well, I mean, short of, short of any monetary gain that can be pulled from that, yeah, there's, there's a difference between. I guess a musician coming into a band and kind of knowing their role and being cool with that yeah. and not really wanting to be a focal point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never wanted that. Okay. And in fact, I remember early days, Brian basically having to push me to the lip of the stage to right. solo. Get up there and rock. I'm just never into that. My preferred uh. spot on a stage is back behind the drummer. <laughs> you know, gotcha. kind of hiding out. I just, I never... I, I actually wouldn't have thought that. Honestly. No, I just, it, it never... It never held any sway for me. I, it's not why I chose to do it, and it's certainly not why I enjoy music and wanted to play music right. for a living. It was it was more the collective. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I were able to contribute a small part that kind of made the arrangement perk up or give mm-hmm. an idea to maybe how to truncate arrangements or elongate them as necessary. Yeah. You know, I was happy to do that. Yeah. You know, it takes a special type of guy to be comfortable laying back in the cut, taking a back seat, getting absolutely no stage time at all. You know, real special type of individual. You know, there are other people that kind of thrive on that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, and honestly, one of the problems I think we had as a band and it was something that got addressed during the second record was 
uh, I guess, the lack of a visual focal point. And that's not to take anything away from Brian because... Yeah, he's a handsome fellow. A handsome bastard, yeah. <laughs> yeah him and his brother yeah, both. Yeah, and Brian yeah. is a six foot five singer yeah, with a voice yeah. like that yeah. and the talent that he has. Uh-huh. It always struck me as a little bit odd that the label felt that he wasn't enough of a presence right, or wasn't right. an, uh, more well known in that regard. With the dyed blonde hair, which was all the rage back then. You remember? <laughs> sure, right, yeah. But to that point, also, it I think it also speaks to a little bit of the label and their oh geez, I don't even know how to how to say it. They they always had a hard time marketing us. Yeah. And it's that want to put something into a box. Yeah. And we weren't yeah. really you know, we weren't the tattooed pierced mm-hmm. kind of typical band that was popular at that time. Yeah. You know, we were just a bunch of corn fed boys from the Midwest right, who right. in my personal assessment weren't bad writers you know and yeah. could hold our own on a stage yeah yeah but because of the nature of radio and all that it's mm-hmm. it's they want things nice and tidy yeah so yeah, yeah back to like the uh the kind of writing and, and stuff like that like i was saying with there there was a lot of space on that record yeah. um well one thing i noticed about i think i'm sure it was mostly you is the amount of what i think of as noise rock solos mm-hmm. these like grungy i don't even know what you call but i think of them as like noise rock where it's like it was popular at the time and i think you were probably doing a lot of that and like i love that kind of shit like these like crazy dirty bendy over pan to the right kind of thing and i noticed there was a lot of that on there that i never really like connected before well you know, maybe on maybe on the title track, the solo for that record, um, and that was, yeah, it was kind of that sheet of noise thing. Yeah, and yeah. it wasn't. It, I don't think it was a direct pinch from bands like, oh geez, uh, from that standpoint, like uh, Hum. Yeah, yeah. You know, that kind of a thing. Uh Um, It was my take on that track and what that solo needed. It was more of the lyrical content of it. Mm -hmm. It was more trying to trying to emote it musically at the hypocrisy of putting something there's somebody like a like a timothy mcveigh on the cover mm, of time and mm-hmm. that whole celebration of these nitwits that now is just so commonplace that we don't even think of it right but right. back then it was kind of you know it's just like giving manson or somebody of that uh, too much airtime. <laughs> yeah, you know it's yeah, funny yeah. You know. yeah um so yeah i think well yeah to look back on it now, I guess, yeah, maybe that was why I chose to approach that song yeah, that way. Yeah. The other things, um, they may have been mixed that way. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you look yeah. at look at the outro solo to the track veneer, which is just all this kind of plaintive, loopy, Ebo stuff. Right, right. Or the outro solo to Ominous Man, which yeah. is just kind of this crescending thing, uh, more scalier, really, yeah, than yeah. anything. Um, well, there's like, I think it's the the first song. It, uh, there's kind of the outro bit and there's like mute. I don't know. There's like hitting the mute switch and it's wah, 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 and there's oh, stuff yeah. panning back and yeah, forth all over the end and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, kind of happens at the end of the yeah. villain solo too. Well, I love that shit. I'm well, a sucker for it. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. It's so, again, I'm trying to think of stuff that I noticed listening to it again. And like, I heard that of course before, but now listening to it from a production standpoint, like what's going on here all around. Yeah. 
don't and pay if I had to give props to anybody for the noise aspect of it, it would probably be a, more Adrian Blue than anybody else. Yeah, yeah, who we were just talking about a little bit there yeah. online. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw uh, uh, Peter Gabriel the other night, which Tony oh, Levin show. plays. Oh, dude, unbelievable. I didn't know that Manny Fiché yeah. was playing with him either. I know, yeah, been he's nice been to see. back with him. He, he's on all the new material. Okay. And because uh, I'm a huge fan of his, too, as yeah. a drummer in those early Peter Gabriel records oh, and everything else mm-hmm. he's done, you know. Yep. Uh, even like I'm actually kind of a big Sting fan, and Manu Ketche played on a bunch of his later records. Did he work with McLaughlin too? I don't know, but I would think so. I, I would think so. I think maybe he did. Yeah, that sounds know. about right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was that was a bucket lister for me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a huge Peter Gabriel fan. So and Tony Levin for that it's matter. I've never got to see him, that. you know, yeah. either. So yeah. Um, Again, those are the things I noticed. And the other thing, and maybe you're not the right guy to talk to about it um, if, you know, Brian was writing most of the lyrics, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of lyrics that, again, are like, it, they're very different hearing them now as an adult than what I was as a kid. You know, I'm like, oh, that has a completely different meaning to me now. Or like, I didn't understand what he was actually saying because I wasn't an adult at that time or something. I, I would like to think that his writing got a little more metaphoric yeah if that's a word as he went on right there was a point in time and it was towards the end of the villains tour we actually ended it in australia with a week's worth of shows and i remember the uh the label rep that we were kind of being cartered around by and concierged by um we got into a discussion one afternoon about dylan Mm -hmm. and he had asked me if i was a fan Obviously, yeah. I mean, everything that I've heard, I've loved. But my problem with him is that his catalog is so vast. Yeah, it's where, where do you start? know where to yeah. jump in? <laughs> right. So he he gave me like three ideas for records, and then it was it was uh, subsequent show dates, and maybe even prior to uh, us starting to work on the Frog record, where back end of the bus i was playing a lot of dylan on a uh, daily okay primarily like blood on the tracks and the freewheeling record and dipping into john wesley harding and that kind of thing and i think it i i don't know if brian was a fan prior to that but i think he really started to get immersed in his writing and yeah, yeah. the use of metaphor and yeah. just to try to the the fine line between keeping lyrics somewhat straightforward but yet yeah. open to interpretation to yeah. where anybody can kind of read what they would like to and that's it. i mean that's i'm a huge fan of that you yeah. know that's the way i write lyrics that's generally my favorite lyrics uh, yeah and uh, brian that poor bastard i mean as often as he's been questioned about the freshman yeah. which has gone <laughs> yeah. probably full circle from uh-huh. it was this and then it was this and then it was that right, to the right. original true meaning of it and then back yeah into yeah. the uh the full circle of it again Right. Dylan kind of making that transition from purely a musician to such like a cultural icon is always crazy to me. I mean, there's a lot of hot water with the whole Bud Light thing right now. Yeah. But uh, that was a Dylan Mulvaney it, joke. We can keep oh, right on. Okay. The other Dylan. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. The other Dylan. Yeah. Well, the, like uh, some of the lyrics in like uh for well for example ominous man so uh, at the time actually here's another 13 year old raw story i didn't know what ominous meant and looked <laughs> it up because of that <laughs> because well, of that song there you go um and again like uh penny is poison kind of being a, a favorite track that gardening malice for murderers i always thought mm-hmm. that was a great lyric yeah you know yep. uh, 
Uh, there's there's a lot of them. I think, the, but I think too, like all of these things are why that record to me still holds up because it's it is like if it was like super. I don't know, director of its time or something. It might just kind of be like, or I wouldn't too, really enjoy listening to it. Or now, too sonically know? convoluted yeah. as well. That's, yeah. that's always a danger too. And that right. space I think that you're alluding to mm-hmm. is, I don't know if it ties into it. I know Brian was a, a huge Kubrick fan and I've heard him uh, quoted as saying many times that the reason that he loved his movies was because you kind of had to come to them. Yeah. Where right. his movies are real, are real, uh, they're not bang, 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 bang. Yeah. They, they, they require you to think a little bit and, and they breathe as a result of mm-hmm. that. And I don't know if it's a direct one-to-one with how he wrote or how yeah. he wanted the record to sound, but right, uh, right, right. it might tie into that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you want to talk about a little bit of the technical side of making sure. that record for Absolutely. me? Absolutely. Um, listening to it again, I'm like, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm like, I think this is all just a lot of like Fender amps on here. There's big, chimey guitar sounds and stuff. So I, I used one amp primarily through that whole record. It was okay. a f- it was the original run of the Fender Viber King. Well, two amps. The original run of the Fender Viber King mm-hmm. and Tone Masters from the custom shop. Nice. Yep. And what was distorted was essentially some tube driven stomp box in front of it okay so we didn't spend a great deal of time with sonics on that record it was basically get a good tone dial it up and here we go kind of thing gotcha so it wasn't like amps for days no 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 no. that that didn't really come into play until the the prior the, the the two records after um what kept us consumed was Jerry's want to incorporate Pro Tools. It was one of the first, well, first time that we'd ever used Pro Tools, really. Um, and Jerry, as a new user, thankfully had an astounding engineer and <laughs> okay. a guy by the name of Carl Durfler who put out fire after fire with that platform. Right, right. Yeah. Because on a daily, it would break down. Well, as you can see, it's still not <laughs> yep. coming too much. Yeah, either break down or eat tracks <laughs> yeah. or what have you. In right. fact, veneer. We had tracked something that everybody was just kind of knocked out by the the outro solo. Okay, came in one day and oh. it was track went away. I was like, son of a bitch, that sucks. Yeah, it really kind of did. Yeah. And it yeah. almost it, and it got to the point too where we would show up and if it was a glitchy kind of day. Jerry would say, I'll take the day off. Oh, man. To, yeah. And to us, it was like, we're paying for this and we're getting yeah. a vacation day. Yeah. yeah, we've already got the weekends free. And it uh, it kills the momentum if you're in that kind of like. Kind of did. Hit, yeah, getting Or, you know, and Jerry sometimes would even show up and say, yeah, I'm just not feeling it today. That's not vibey enough. Right, yeah. Okay. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Okay. So, yeah, you deal with it. Such is the rock and roll life. I suppose, Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. So did you guys do uh, like basic tracks first? Like, was it like cut all the drums and yeah, start was, overdubbing? Or yeah, like... really traditional in that okay. respect. Yeah. And were you guys like playing uh, when you were cutting the drums? Were you like still playing like as a band like, oh, yeah. together? You, yep. So you were doing yep. it like full, that? Full complement of band, I think, even to the point where Brian was singing. Right. Or at least mouthing through the words to get through them. Right, um, right So right. we could get a performance down. That was the way that we did all our records that way. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And it, but uh, like isolated, like you're in different yeah. like ISO booths and or whatever. Uh, or like. The Villains record, we did the basic tracks at Studio D in Sausalito. Okay. Uh, and it was a big stone-lined live room. Um, 
big drum sound room yeah but yeah so yeah. everybody else was fairly isolated but we were all sitting within the same spot okay uh in order to capture the drums okay. and we had a visible sight line to our drummer right. and everybody else so gotcha gotcha yeah. the drums also sound great on that album it's so does the bass guitar too, right you know? yeah the rhythm section yeah. uh tracks on that album do sound really really well particularly yeah. on reverend girl yeah just, which is my other favorite song yeah mine as well yeah, that's a yep. great tune yeah i mean to me there's no bad songs on that album at all like i, I really like every single song like bless that, you for saying so. I, I really do and uh yeah. well I, you probably heard me talking about talking to joel about it too is i get in these like arguments i mean not for real but you know about the freshman or you know yeah. the verb pipe or whatever and i'm like motherfuckers i wish i wrote that song a thousand times you and you know, both. Like, yeah and in fact i don't know if this has ever gotten brought up or whatever but we had initially we knew that song was kind of going to be the single again. Right, because it was already on the old record and everything. He bringing it back because right. he knew yeah, how and, good it and, was. Yeah. And the impetus from our A&R guy that this is going to be the single. So interspersed with cutting other tracks for that record, we knew that we were kind of up against it with the other one and didn't really have any sort of clear, concise picture of how we wanted to treat it mm -hmm. say for we knew that we wanted to get away from the original version of it right so how do you incorporate it with a full complement of band yeah there was a little bar that was down the street from the studio that we would adjourn to occasionally after we'd get done working for the night and go and play shuffleboard and they had a great jukebox there and drink anchor steam and just talk about what we'd done the previous yeah. day yeah there were a couple times where we had coerce the studio owner hey let us come back in we're gonna go to the bar and have a few <laughs> yeah let's we're come gonna back come in. back in and uh -huh. just bandy some ideas around and it got to the point where we were picking up each other's instruments maybe just yeah. to try to spark a fire as mm -hmm. it were and the original the version that we came up with it and originally ended up on that record was this god awful dreary chris isaacsy uh -huh. lopey lullaby of a version of it which did nothing for no one and that was <laughs> the 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 version that ended up originally getting striped onto the album yes yes and it came to pass where the label and r they were like look this isn't it uh -huh. so we ended up going uh to los angeles and working with jack joseph puig and the version that ended up becoming a single was one that we recorded at Ocean Way, uh, essentially live. The, 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 the performance that you hear minus the vocal mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit of sugar thrown on top was right. a live recording gotcha. of us gotcha. doing this. Yeah. Um, and to his credit, Jack nailed it. You know, gotcha. uh, yeah. not only the feel of the song, but uh, uh, just getting away from that version that right. should have never been. Yeah. All right. So before the thing died, we were talking about the freshman. Yeah. <laughs> and uh I got two two things about it. We were talking about how it you know how it is a, a great song, I think. And uh one of my thoughts about that was you can kind of prove it in the fact that there are these multiple versions of it. Mm -hmm. And even though it didn't, might not have worked that one that you did, that was like, you know, the original single or whatever, the Chris Isaacs version. Right. But, <laughs> but you know what? And, and I know that version's still out there and yeah. I'm sure it's still pretty damn good. And it's like, there's the acoustic version and then there's the more rock version. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, there was even a little bit more rocky version that you guys would do live. Cause I saw a verse pipe live a couple times and I remember it rocking a little bit more. And maybe I'm wrong, but 
like yeah maybe um it's just live anyway it's a little yeah, more a little like, more you know, energetic yeah. I, yeah. what i really remember was the bridge kind of really coming up yeah you know the uh, last live course. and stuff like yep. that yep. yeah so and i mean that to me is always like this sign of like if it's a great song if you can just play it on acoustic and absolutely. voice absolutely and or it can be you know mm-hmm. like so i'm like that kind of proves it when, and, yeah when things like that transcend yeah from yep. one uh not arrangement, but one, I guess, lineup of, yeah, of yeah. musicians to another yeah. or just even in the solo setting. Yeah. 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 It definitely speaks to the strength of it. And then uh, one thing I wanted to comment on, too, was I always really liked that guitar part that I'm assuming is your guitar. Part. It is. Yeah. You know, it almost is like violin ish or something. Mm-hmm. And it, it does that repeating lick with the. And I always thought like that to me, like added so much. To, it made it like. It adds like the epic layer to it or something like that. I always thought it's I don't know that I would be ballsy enough to couch it as mysterious, Mm -hmm. but it's just modal enough to kind of make you think, what is this about? Right. Sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. The the intro bit, I don't recall how I came up with that da 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 thing. Um, it, It I guess more of. I guess now that I think of it, it almost sounds like a like a horn announcing something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that little counterpoint thing prior to the chorus kicking in was just yeah something yeah. to kind of perk up the the ear of the listener. Right. You and you, do you just play that normal, or was that on an ebo or something? Because I I wasn't I, sure. If it... I no, it's normally played, but I'm in open E tuning. Brian's oh. Brian's capoed it too and playing it out of D. Oh, okay. So okay. whenever you see somebody com- cover it, ten times out of ten, they're probably standard tuning, but playing it out that's of an E that's major how position. Little Ross used to play it. Yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, no, and it certainly yeah. works that way too. Right, yep. right. Yep. Yeah, I did not realize that too. Yeah, yeah. And then I was wondering too, uh, with the two versions, the you were saying it's like a Chris Isaacy version or whatever. It's a little slower. Yeah, it's also that literally translate to it being longer. And I was wondering if they were it just like. Like, yep. you know, if like the label was coming back to you and say, this is just literally too long for radio and you need to like speed it up or something. I don't know that it was necessarily long to the point where radio would have ignored it. I think radio would have ignored it because it didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair. It was just, it was just kind of flat and yeah. there wasn't enough of a, pardon the pun, enough of an arc to the song. <laughs> um where and you know not that it was like intentionally us trying to dip our toes into somebody else's real estate like you know the whole loud quiet thing Mm -hmm. wasn't really about that um the the version that eventually became the signal uh, the single um i guess kind of ventured into that a little bit but everything in radio did then you know that that quiet loud thing thanks frank black yeah for that exactly Um, (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, the original version of it, 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 it was a little longer, I think, because obviously the tempo was a little, a little slower, um, but just a little too plaintive mm-hmm. for radio. It just, there just wasn't anything about it that gotcha, grabbed gotcha. anybody. It is interesting though, the two that, oh, well, this kind of, again, I guess maybe speaks to the strength of the song was they were like, this is still a great song. You should just do it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. interesting because it seems like most of the time, you know, with a younger band or something, they'd just be like, oh, that sucks. Let's do something else or, you know, like, or whatever. Well, like, I mean, if you think about the time frame, we came in on the tail end of, I mean, the pre-Napster thing. Yeah. 
And I think a lot of that mindset that A&R was having, despite the fact that we had a three-record deal, I mean, who doesn't want their artist's new signing to come right out of the gate swinging? Yeah, of course. And if they were smart enough to recognize that this song is the song on the record with regards to any potential radio play, Mm -hmm. then obviously, yeah, it would behoove them to... Right. Kind of pick the thing apart a little bit. And, yeah. And yeah. hopefully get what they're after yeah. for it. You yeah. Know? Well, and then that's, so that was another thing I was saying. I had the old CD. Well, I was reading on the Wikipedia again that the issue of villains that had that on it that had the blue plastic in the jewel case. This is what it says in Wikipedia. And I had a copy of Villains that had the blue plastic. Yeah. And then I know it because I know I had like three copies of it through the years at one point. So I was like, damn it. I wish I still had that, too. But I don't think I do. But well, apparently that has the original version. Of I want to say some of that blue plastic run was also tied into some of the promotional pressings that were issued. Uh-huh. That which would make sense because it would be earlier. Right. Yep. And I believe some of those original promo pressings were not only the album version and or the radio edit version version um but maybe even a live version Ah, to your point earlier about the multiple versions of it yeah i know that there was a live version that was recorded at the state theater where brian is just playing and singing solo Uh um that is it i well the radio the label must have released it but it was released to like retailers right to where you would hear this in an ambercrombie and fitch Uh type uh, of environment uh, you know had the big stamp on it promotional copy right yeah that, that. that whole thing <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's really interesting i love that crap I, I had several cds that had that promotional copy to of the same era like yeah i remember i had a local h cd you remember local h oh yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> played a few copies. shows with those guys Did back you? Then. oh Did yeah you? that's cool yeah basically anybody who was around in the 90s uh-huh. at some point because of all those radio festivals and right. all those bands played we played with everyone yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. so the freshman though was not the first single off that record. Is it that? was the third single. Okay. Yeah, photograph being the first, uh-huh. and then cup of tea with, accompanied by the world's worst video ever made. Ooh, I never saw the video. Oh, man. I'm gonna have to look uh, that one up. You did yourself a favor. <laughs> yeah, videos no, it, were there were some pretty bad videos back in that. It era. was uh, well, photograph was a little indicative of everybody else's videos, uh-huh. and it was uh, Lawrence. Oh, and I'm going to draw a blank on the guy's last name. He worked for everyone. And you can tell because it, seeming, it seemed like every video he did, they all had that similar look. If you look at, uh, and hopefully somebody will fill in the blanks on his last name, but there was a band out of Columbus called Holland Maggie that we did some shows with in 96. Great bunch of guys. Uh, Happy, their lead singer, was the bass player in Royal Crescent Mob prior to that. Cool. And uh, he did their version, he did their video for the song Alcohol, which was their big breakthrough hit. And it looks almost identical. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, even down to some of the extras that he used. It's like, <laughs> nice, really? Nice. That's that same old guy. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there was a lot of that going on back then. But, right, right, yeah, And then right. Cup of Tea was just 
awful. So all three of those songs had videos then? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I've ever really seen any of them. Maybe I did back in the day, but I don't remember what they looked Photograph like. Photograph got quite a bit of play on MTV. Yeah. Uh, and even, like, I know it saw its premiere on 120 Minutes. Oh, cool. Um, cool. Went through that whole rotational thing. I love that song, too. And that's another, I mean, that song, it's all driven by that organ lick during, like, a lot of it. Yeah, it was, um, I I want to say if I'm my memory is serving me, it was uh, Dougie's perversion of a, uh, I want to say the synth line to Gin and Juice. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A total, total lift, but nice, just kind of nice. turned down its ear a little bit. Yeah, and that goes back to what I'm talking about with like the songwriting and stuff. It's like, okay, like this whole thing is like based on this lick, and maybe if he came in with the song, but it's like this is not the same song without this lick happening. You know what I mean? So like, I think it just it, it's frame of reference. Yeah, we had a lot of people, uh, fans from the the older incarnation of the band that didn't like the the updated version of the freshman they wanted that more folky mm, yeah slap back guitar from one channel to the other harry right. chapin kind of thing but, yeah i mean yeah I'm, I'm a big fan of that photograph song too like i said there's there's no song on that record that i don't think is great well, thank you maybe it was just nice. like but i don't i really don't think it is that it was just because it was a time and place for me because there's other records of that era i've played through oh, sure. you know what i mean i'm just yeah. like ah oh, boy this one's <laughs> I know a lot of people, too, that love that record, like it from the standpoint that, um, you know, it was hometown boys. Yeah, there's that, too. You know, actually doing that. Thing. But that's what I always fight against is I know so many people that don't like it simply because hometown I, boys. whatever this thing is about, you know, like, yeah, well, you know, uh, fuck. And I'm like, really, dude? Like, I'm, I'm trying to be as objective as I can about music. And like, right. I'm like, yeah, whatever, man. This record's fucking sweet. And, you, <laughs> you know, know, anybody that would want to be in a solely underground band more power to you yeah, but ultimately yeah. you want to get your music out to as yeah. many people as you can yeah, yeah. and that doesn't obviously mean that you have to whore yourself out in the process yeah, and i yeah. don't know that we ever really did that right i don't think so despite what anybody else might think about yeah. that but um with us it was always it was always about the song it was all yeah. we were always trying to work on the craft of the right. song yeah and we probably failed more than we succeeded but the times that we succeeded are the ones yeah, that yeah. you know we kind of would yeah. latch on to we were and, just talking about it outside a little bit with the you know like tight arrangements and these like arrangements that like make sense and like that's what i was talking about is there's a lot of like instrumentation and space mm-hmm. and stuff in that yeah. record where it's like even like what i was just saying it's like there's just that organ lick and the bass you know it just opens with that and that simple drum part yeah you know like these kind of things yep you know beinhorn had a great saying guy that produced our second record had a yeah. great saying i would uh i would do a take you know, sitting in the control with him, uh, control room with him doing uh, rhythm tracks. And I would do a take and think that I would nail it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and he was such a taskmaster that we were always trying to appease the guy. Yeah, you know? right. Um, I'd get done with a take and he'd hit the transport and say, you turn around, and look at me, and go, yeah, it was great. Why don't you save that for your solo record? Let's try another one. <laughs> Jesus. Damn. Yeah, demoralizing. Yeah. But, you know, it, we always, yeah. always try to make the man happy. Right. You know? um, before I'm, we move on to talking about that record and stuff, uh, I'm going to just freaking beat villains to death. No, it's fine. <laughs> yep. um, what did the freshman like, 
peak at on the charts and stuff do you know i mean it was a pretty uh, freaking big hit there for a while on the chart i know it went number one in the philippines hey all of right. all places There's right a lot of people in the philippines <laughs> happy to take their money Goddamn right. um it it did i want to say top five business like modern alternative rock or uh-huh, adult okay. contemporary or that makes sense one yeah. of those hundreds of charts that billboard was running at the time okay. i haven't looked at billboard magazine in years i don't know if it's I, still the same kind I of don't, i don't know thing. either yeah if that even exists anymore or how yeah. they even go about doing that and we never really paid too much attention to that kind of stuff right right uh, you know it was I think some people did, but it was more of a, more of an in passing thing. It was more of a, a curiosity, yeah. as opposed to thinking, "Oh, geez, we have to keep up with the right. Jones." kind of a thing. Sure. Funny story. When we ended the Villains tour, we ended up doing. It was well to backtrack a little bit. We started van and trailer, and it course, morphed yeah. into you know full complement of crew with a bus. Right. And, right. You know all those atypical trappings we ended we ended that tour with a week in hawaii a little bit of vacation nice and a show and matchbox 20 who was just starting to kind of climb up the charts Mm -hmm. then before the record really really blew up yeah was on the bill and they were the band that was up prior to us and we'd played with them a few times but for me personally, I never really hung around too much after a show. I would watch bands that were up before us, maybe a handful of bands that were up after us, yeah. depending on what our schedule was. Um, so Matchbox 20 played, I'm sorry, Matchbox 20 and then a different band and then ourselves. Uh, so they got done with their set, kind of milling around backstage waiting to go on. And one of their guitar players, and I forget who it was, the big, tall, lanky brunette guy, walks up to me and said, hey, you're AJ from the Verve Pipe. And I said, yeah, you're so-and-so with Matchbox. Hi, nice to meet you. Um, and I said, hey, congratulations on the record. You know, I just happened to, here I am negating everything I've just said about Billboard, but yeah, yeah. I just happened to look at chart listings and you guys are doing really well. Your record's selling phenomenally. And he's like, well, we're, we're really kind of bummed out right now. Thinking, what in the fuck do you have to be bummed out about? And right. I just said, your record just sold 300,000 copies last yeah. week. Why? He goes, well, because we sold more the week previous. Oh, come and on. right there, yeah. it was just like, and then he went on to say, yeah, you know, I always wanted to talk with you, but I would never see you after the shows and just always assumed you were an asshole. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like well, yeah, I am. well, okay. Yeah. Enjoy your flight back to the, the coast. Yeah, hope your plane doesn't yeah. drop itself in the water on the well, way but. i bought that record so that was one but i never yeah. that band never clicked with me you know it was one of those things where it was so popular i did buy it i had that one record but i don't think i even spun it more than twice we you used know? to uh we used to close our shows out constantly like doing a beatles cover like strawberry mm-hmm. fields or lucy in the sky or something and donnie our drummer <clears throat> had the brilliant idea to drag their drummer up and have him sit during like after the second chorus we would break it down and do this ridiculous guitar solo thing so we're playing and and i don't notice it except for all of a sudden the tempo starts to nosedive <laughs> and i knew rob their singer was on stage shaking a tambourine and fucking okay. off with brian yeah singing the choruses right. but it comes to this portion of the song and all of a sudden the, the tempo nosedives and i turn around 
and I see their drummer sitting behind Donnie's kit and Donnie's just standing next to him. <laughs> hand on his chin with this, could have had a thought caption bubble over his head reading what the fuck have I just done kind of a thing. <laughs> but yeah, it you know, and the, the oddest thing about that whole experience with working with all these bands is that bands that you would never have thought, at least coming from our background, you know, again, mm-hmm. just unassuming Midwestern guys, you wouldn't have thought that some of these uh, other musicians and these other bands that you would have really gotten on with and other bands that you would have thought that you would have really connected with somehow were just so egocentric and yeah, full of themselves. Right. But guys like Charlie Paulson, the guitar player from Goldfinger, nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. Yeah. You yeah. know, so here I am wearing a suit. Here's Charlie, tattooed, leather vest, yeah. no shirt. Just nicest guy you'd ever right. want to meet. Yeah. 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 yeah it's crazy. That to a person. Cool. I could see Matchbox 20 being pretty, uh, they were, chasing the chart and stuff. And I mean, you know, I guess a word for them. They did pretty well for a long you, time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I don't have a lot of space for people that are assholes. I mean, no. or, you know, just, or, or meeting a band initially months mm-hmm. prior that, you know, you got along famously with yeah. at an after show. And then you see them three months after once the record blows up and they suddenly don't know who you are. Oh man. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. It's got yeah. time for that. That's no, ridiculous. nobody. Yeah. Yep. So you guys, how long did you tour, uh, on that record? I mean, it must've been quite a while. About three and a half years. Yeah. All said and done. Nice. And maybe, two three weeks of break time interspersed but not all consecutive mm-hmm. days so yeah it was a grind yeah total grind right right, yep. right right yeah um kind of i guess we can probably kind of move along a little bit to the frog record okay. as, as they say right. um i was just listening to unless that. you wanted to discuss the kiss thing at all the kiss thing what were we talking about well we toured with them Oh, okay. Let's hear about this. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say it predates the whole frog thing, but this would have been 96 before the freshman even came out. Um, we were one of the bands that did the K-Rock Weenie Roast thing, which was their first date back with the makeup on. Oh, no shit. Yeah. So all these bands that it was the Chili Peppers and Garbage right. and 311 and Everclear, all these yeah, bands that yeah. were... You know, up on the pedestal a little bit, we're just going ape shit over the fact that we're, oh, we're going to play with Kiss, you know, right. that whole thing. And I was, you know, a huge Kiss fan uh-huh. as a kid. What what kid my age wouldn't have been? Um, so that was a pretty surreal thing to watch them play their first show. For me, it would have been plenty. Uh, and as it turns out, Doug Buttleman uh, had a great relationship with Doc McGee, who was managing them at the time. Okay. And so a lot of bands, um, I know there were a few, and I think the only band that I can think of that opened for them prior to us would have been Stabbing Westward, if you remember those guys. Uh, so I, not only do I remember them, I'm, I'm a huge fan, and the yeah. stuff we were talking about that I do now is very much based on okay. Stabbing right. Westward. A, a yeah. Nice bunch of fellows, too. Nice, guys. yeah, I'd love to meet them. So after they got done with their leg, um, we got word that we got picked up for three weeks worth of dates in the states with them yeah we're like holy that's fuck, crazy this is great <laughs> so the first time i was able to i picked the brains of those who were out with them you know just trying to figure out what it was going to be about right and well as it turned out and i don't know how but apparently gene and paul were both fans of the record and yeah. we ended up doing those three weeks worth of dates with them in the states 
went back to our normal thing. And then a month after that, we got asked to do Europe with them, Damn. which turned into a good two and a half months worth of dates. Holy shit. So this would have been as far east as Prague, all the way through Europe and into the UK. Yeah. Um, and the differences between the crowds were pretty noticeable, too, right. because American audiences rarely would hang out for an opening band right right uh, particularly a kiss crowd yeah. where uh, we had shows in prague and in paris that were just phenomenal and the response was great for us until we got to germany and when we got to germany apparently ticket sales were pretty light so kiss had decided that they were going to bring on a pseudo famous regional act called de artsy which means <laughs> the doctors okay artsy, doctor All right. um not only did these guys take the piss out of Kiss during their set, which was sandwiched between ours and theirs, um, <laughs> but uh, the the German fans were apeshit with them. Damn. And there was no mention of us on the bill. <laughs> so we're playing these, you know, anywhere from twenty to 60,000 seat arenas. The lights right. go down. Yeah. You get up on stage. These people think that their band is coming up, and here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah, there was a lot of spit and coin dodging and right. that kind of stuff, and a lot of birds flown and <laughs> that whole thing. But it is, it, it is a pretty random bill. Like I wouldn't really think of like the Verve pipe and Kiss. I know. Yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. But yeah. again, you know, they they wanted us out there, and we were happy to oblige. Hell but yeah. It was it was nothing short of surreal. And, yeah. You know, and when you start a tour like that, you get met with uh, the initial security guy sit you down or management in our case sat you down and said, OK, here's the deal. Kisses dressing rooms are on this side of the venue. Yours are on this side. You eat after the crew eats, which is after Kiss eats. <laughs> and you're not to talk to them unless they talk to you first. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. All that shit. So every day we would do our due diligence and eat our breakfast cereal we lived on cereal and whiskey <laughs> and and they right. didn't allow us to have whiskey so our poor tour manager every day in the middle of someplace europe looking for a bottle of jack daniels wow. to satiate us <laughs> before showtime um so we would wait and i would go into catering and 90 percent of the time there's paul sitting yeah there by himself eating right and it got to the point where he, he would flag me over and we would sit down and talk about, geez, everything from gear to how much we love the Beatles yeah. to occasionally hanging out a little bit together in the afternoon, singing Everly Brothers songs right. together and just the, the, the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. Yeah. He gets a lot of shit for his stage banter and Lord knows I probably supplied some of that my own <laughs> self, but you know a total music fan and not a snob at all about it that's and awesome yeah. despite all the rhetoric and all the pomposities one of these guys that gets it he's there for the right reason right he's right, there right. because he loves music yeah know? yeah which is maybe a little bit counterpoint to gene you know what you might be able to say is i think gene at his core is kind of cut from that same cloth and frankly he would have to be for yeah. those guys to have to have have had the relationship that they've had for that many years. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Gene is certainly more. Yeah. Well, they kind of balance each other out. I mean, that's one of those partnerships, you know, right. of just, yeah, you yeah. Know. The, the emotional aspect of it versus the mm -hmm. capitalistic aspect of right. it, the business yeah. aspect of it. Do you hang so, out with Gene at all or meet him? Or anything? Yeah. I, we talked to him a, a handful of times. Funny story. Uh, we'll close the kiss off stuff, uh, stuff off with this, but 
the last show that we did was another show in Germany. And we were flying out the next day. I think we had a day off, and then we were playing the State Theater in Kalamazoo again. So, and for whatever reason, our dressing rooms were right next to one another in this particular venue. <laughs> so we got done with our set. We had the door open, and I'm sitting in a chair closest to the door, and we're having a Gatorade or whatever we were drinking. And I see Gene pacing back and forth in front of our door, you know, just getting ready for showtime. Yeah. And dressed in full garb. And, and he's a tall guy without the fucking boots on. Yeah, yeah, he's but a big But with that dude. shit on, man, he's like seven foot tall yeah, and posing yeah. to say, say nothing of it. But so we're, we're having a discussion about the set list that we're going to play in Kalamazoo. And Donnie, who was absolutely fearless in those days, was like, hey, Gene, Gene, come in here and settle this <laughs> argument for us. So he kind of stands in the doorway. John, Donnie gives his spiel, and Gene starts talking. And as he's talking, his head, he's in the doorway, but his head's inside the door jam in our, yeah. in our room. And because of where I was seated, all I can see is this huge silver cod piece. And I'm <laughs> trying not to stare at it, you know, for fear of having to page Dr. Freud. And as he's talking, and, and very well-spoken, very astute man. And yeah. as he's talking, he works his body into the doorway. And all of a sudden, from down the hall, he gets screamed at, hey, Gene, five minutes, we're on. So, they're, okay, guys, got to go. Great set. You know, thanks for doing this with us. Good luck on the flight home, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Turns around and forgets where he is and cracks his oh. fucking head on the door jam and falls into my lap. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lap full of Gene and everybody's like on and wide eyed. Yeah. And he gets up and you could almost see the stars around his head. And I'm like, are you okay? You hit yourself pretty hard. He goes, yeah, I'll be all right. And I said, you, not for nothing, but you might want to go touch up because you got a big streak across your forehead. Right, no. right. I don't think he was two feet outside the door, and we all started pissing oh, ourselves God. laughing loud, imagine. loud at him. Yeah, it's yeah. like every astute thing he said yeah. just went right down the shitter. Yeah, that's some serious spinal tap shit. Oh, right told. <laughs> well, and he, out of anybody, he had the moments yeah. where... I remember watching the show from the side of the stage and stage is full of smoke. Gene's doing his hand in the arm thing. Yeah. Spins around to, to try to climb up the riser and trips and falls. Oh, uh, yeah. And suddenly he just disappears, but all you see is like this <laughs> this tuning key fly off his base and arc into the crowd where he just totally wiped out. But yeah, oh, definitely man. definitely a few of those yeah, moments. Yeah, all those huge-ass boots and everything. <laughs> or being flown during the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. During the bass solo, right, or one right. night the harness didn't come down, or <laughs> yeah, all that kind of stuff. That's yeah. that's epic, man. Mm -hmm. That's epic. Yeah. Uh, did you ever play with the band live? Um, once or twice. Uh, Jerry Harrison produced their record. Mm -hmm. um, we actually had a dinner with those guys. Okay. At Jerry's house, and. Boy, you talk about pretentious rock stars. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that now in their whole thing. Yeah, yeah and this yeah. was the the day before they had opened for PJ Harvey. Oh, okay. We saw them. It was at Shoreline Amphitheater in, in San Francisco. And uh, 
and they were okay. You know, not to take anything away from it. it just yeah. it wasn't my thing. Right. Um. Right. I the reason I bring it up is because I loved that record, dude. That throwing copper yeah. record, which is yep. the same era. So yep. I was playing that, and villains were, were, and you know, a couple others were right there. And, you know, and I want to say that was the record that Harrison produced prior to yeah. working with us. Okay. So gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that. Yeah. That is. He did that. He did that one with them, and then not the next one, but then the one after that. I think oh, I didn't know back. that. I'm okay. pretty sure they were trying to, you know, re. I don't know, refine that glory because I mean, like sure. that record sold fucking five million Ooh, copies or some lots. crap like that. Yeah, just that and of like six number one hits or five number one hits or something, which is. Yeah, he, it's good luck making that lightning strike twice. You oh, know? no. But, uh, that's, yeah. that's the inherent danger, isn't it? Yeah, you indeed. Know? That that whole 10 years to write your first record scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sophomore curse, yep. they call it, or whatever. Yep. Um, how many, because uh, you probably don't know, but Villains went platinum, though, right? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So do you got the plaque and I all do. that? Nice. I do. That's so cool. Yeah, platinum in the States, maybe even close to double by now. Um, gold in Canada. And I think a few other countries, but I have a Canadian gold and uh, the American yeah. RIAA mm. certified platinum. That is very yeah. cool. Mm. Yeah, that's so cool, man. Used to used to take them down prior to starting work on the the next record, uh, just to not be reminded uh, of it. Yeah, you know, speaking don't of the sophomore it. curse, you know? yeah, right. Just don't <laughs> yeah. want to be reminded of it. Fresh yeah. start, you know, mm-hmm. square one. So. All right, so uh, Villains is huge. We've talked about it a lot. It goes on. You tour for like three years or, mm-hmm. or so. Mm-hmm. And then it's what? Record company coming at you. You got to, where's the follow-up? Where's the follow-up? <laughs> like, what? where's your guys' mindset at here? Well, the mindset was essentially to, to try to get right back into the studio again. Okay, so and no break. It wasn't like we're taking six months off. Or... Well, the last recording that we did after the Villains record was done was to go to Ocean Way and work with Jack to, to do what became the the uh, radio version of the freshman okay and that eventually ended up getting striped into the release yeah um yeah so after that we had been writing and we knew it was going to come time to you know do that whole thing again where you're meeting with producers mm-hmm. and uh we were of the mindset at that point to want to work with jack Joseph Puig to have him produce the record. So we had gone into Station C Studios where we had done the first two indies and a lot of rehearsal work or pre-production work. Mm -hmm. And we recorded the demos that we'd had at that time, a handful of of which ended up on the Frog album. Um, We had flown Jack out from Los Angeles and he spent a few days with us in the studio. And he was convinced at that time that we weren't ready to go in. He didn't think the material was ready or strong enough or what have you. Okay. And by that time, I mean, we we were still, we weren't as green as we were when obviously initially signed, but grand scheme of things, we were still neophytes. Yeah. But knew well enough to know that we've got to get in the studio. We've yeah. Got to make this yeah. happen. So yeah. once we realized that Jack didn't think we were ready, we we're like, okay, well, then what next? So in the interim, we had flown to England to do some press, and we met with Chris Kimsey, 
who had produced, uh, I'm a little sketchy on his catalog. I know he'd done work with the Stones. Oh, shit. And he was in England uh, working on a live Pink Floyd record, engineering a live Pink Floyd record. Okay. So we ended up meeting him at David Gilmore's house oh, on the town. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, which was pretty surreal. Like yeah. Dave wasn't around. Right, and we weren't right, right. really allowed into the house, into the residence. Except for the like this one little back garden room, oh, okay. we sat for half a second waiting for Chris to show. Okay, and then when Chris arrived, he walked us on to the houseboat where mm-hmm. Dave has his studio. Yep. So yeah, stood in every corner of that room, played oh, every guitar man. I could get my hands Damn. on, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I've watched like studio tours of it and stuff. That's so yeah, awesome. Yeah, the footage of him like playing uh, "Shine On You Crazy Diamond," yeah. where he's singing it and playing electric. That's yeah. all done. Yeah, and on his boat there, yeah. but. Um, so yeah, we'd met with Chris and a few other people. No one was really impressing us too much. And then we ended up meeting with Michael Beinhorn. Yeah. How, like, how did somebody suggest him? That would have been, yeah, through our A&R guy, Brian Maloof. Okay. Recommended that we meet with him. Yeah. And he must've been, I mean, that's not far off from super unknown. Uh, three, four years. Super unknown. That's 94. Four, I want to say 94, 95. And this in is the, what, 99? This so? would have been 98 when uh, we met with Mike. Okay, right, uh, right. Spring of 98. And it's at not, that time. It's not that far off from them. And, you no, know. and in the interim, he had done um, the Celebrity Skin record for Hole. Okay. And I think he was just finishing up on the Mechanical Animals record for Manson. Right. All of which had big hits. Yeah. And because of some of the remixing things that he was called to do, our schedule kept getting pushed back and back Uh, and back. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up, I think we finally got together with Michael. I want to say it was the beginning of June or maybe the beginning of July of 98. And we flew out to Jersey and we did two weeks worth of pre-production in, uh, Geez, some little, some town in Jersey. It's right across the bridge yeah. from Manhattan, Fort something. I with, with with him there? Was yeah. He, okay. Yeah, he was okay. there in some little closet of yeah. a rehearsal room, gotcha. some yeah. facility. Did two weeks with him, and then we started at, we were going to start recording at the Hit Factory. Hmm. And this is- That would been cool. <laughs> this is where the fun started. Well, they had a setup on the sixth floor, which was the big- huge open live room okay. that's where Sinatra cut a bunch of his capital okay. sides okay. with a full complement of orchestra. Yep, yep. And we had we were, we were concentrating on drums and bass tracks and right. Michael went nuts. I mean, this guy owns more gear than God, including <laughs> like old Neumann, the old Hitler mics. Yeah. Where yeah. it has the big canister with yeah. the stem on it, right. you know, and he's got that stuff on the drum kit. Right. And had a full PA system in the room yeah. and miking the PA. Right, which was a very popular thing that, at the yeah, time. Right. You know? Yeah. So we're doing this for, I don't know, maybe a month, month and a half. And Michael starts hearing this weird anomaly uh that he thought was caused by faulty electric within within the control room some buzz that and michael must have Uh been raised by wolves because he's the only person that can hear this shit (laughs) but i mean it got crazy to the point where production completely grind to a halt wow he ended up flying the guy who designed that particular room from england holy shit over to suss out the room we had called in con electric to double check to make sure all the electric (laughs) was 
was copacetic. And then one Monday, first thing I show up and Michael's like, pack your shit, we're leaving. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. So another two weeks off and we start recording at Right Track Studios, which was right in Midtown Manhattan. It was okay. run by uh, Tony Bon Jovi, who was John's oh, uncle. Okay. And John used to be a tape op coffee getter makes in that sense. studio. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And we ended up doing the bulk, well, the rest of the record there. Gotcha. gotcha. But start to finish, man, a good eight and a half, almost close to nine months All to right. do that record. That's pretty brutal, especially at that time. Yeah. You know? Well, to say nothing to the cost of it, I know we uh -huh. spent well over a million bucks making that record. Right. Between studio costs and resident costs and yep. DMs and yep. everything else involved. But, right, right. Um, I remember when that record came out again, buying it on CD. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think like a lot of people, it's so, it's so different than it villains. It's a yeah. very different record. It's a very, um, again, to, to go back to what we were talking about, that knee jerk reaction from yeah, record to record. Yep, this yep. was again, more of a kitchen sink type of record. Yes. Yes. And because of Michael's pedigree, I think that we were all. I think by that time we had gotten wise to the fact that there's no way that this band could ever self-produce a record mm -hmm. without each other, without <laughs> us yeah, killing right. one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we gave Michael the benefit of the doubt and just let him run with it. Right. And yeah. Yeah. To his credit or discredit, depending again on whom you ask or what accountant you ask. Yeah. Uh, things got a little little carried away with yeah. the amount of time but that was right, the way that right. michael worked and right we had full faith in him at that time yeah um, well and i mean you know again the track record of some of the records that guy had done but how do you how do you question the it, guy that exactly that produced black hole song yeah i mean that entire record super unknown as a masterpiece for the ages or the work I mean. that he did with the peppers or with mm -hmm. the material with bill laswell all that stuff or co-wrote yeah. Rocket with Herbie Hancock. Oh shit! I don't know. I don't know all that. I yeah. mostly know him from some of those, mostly the Soundgarden stuff. Honestly. Yeah, I'm a huge Soundgarden fan. Yeah, but, yeah, a big, yeah. Uh, big synth head, Michael. Is he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, I don't know if we have already captured this, but um, when we were recording, well, throughout the bulk of the record, Michael wanted Brian to concentrate just on lyric writing and okay, and yeah, yeah, vocal work. So. Because of that, I did probably 99% of all the guitar work on mm -hmm. that album. Mm -hmm. uh, Brian's on a couple of the intro tracks, like Half a Mind and one other. Um, but because of that, I spent more time with Michael than did anybody else. Right. So I developed more of a relationship with him. I think I have a little more insight to how he worked. And one of the more valuable things that he taught me was how a track is compiled with regards to the rhythm section versus the other instrumentation that happens on mm -hmm. the record. For example, if you listen to, if you listen to old Motown records or even to use it as an example, like Led Zeppelin two, because Led Zeppelin were huge Motown buffs, yeah. particularly Bonham and Jones. Yeah. If you listen to where the drum track lives in relation to everything else that's going on in the mix, those records that have that pocket, that huge feel, mm -hmm. you generally have one instrument that's like pretty much always pushing the one of the measure. And then you have other uh, instrumentation uh, that's lagging behind, say the guitar player or the piano player. Right. And it's not always 
broken down in that specific type of instrumentation. Yeah. But at some point, you kind of have that equation going on. And to prove it, he had taken, we were working on two inch then, uh, and then backing up tracks on a quarter inch digital reel as well as a Pro Tools save. Right. And um, he had flown in uh, rhythm tracks of my guitar tracks that I just recorded to the digital reel in order to, to push things back and push things forward. And given the example of pushing that bass track way out in front to create that pocket for the drums and then having the guitar track live way in back of the one to reinforce that pocket Interesting. was a huge lesson that he just... So I, he would literally move it. Yeah. Like, you're not talking about, like, you need to play it this way. Well, he would he take would, the... He would... He had a drumstick that he would beat on the console with. <laughs> To, to, to help keep time yeah. and primarily for Brad the bass player to kind of get him to push that one a little bit because ah. he was not really uh, I guess comfortable doing that or right. just hadn't done it enough Yeah. where with me he tried it initially to the point where it became a little too distracting he was like oh look okay I get the concept Right. just treat it really lazily yeah. and if you need to you can always push the track back a little bit ah. digitally but yeah it was it was a huge eye opener for me that like, is crazy because Yep. especially nowadays everything's so digital and everything's on the grid as they say oh, and you man. know and and I you mean, listen to those old records those old stones and kinks records and beatles records that are full of mistakes yeah yeah it's where the inherent charm is right you know yeah. those those little muffs of uh of the timing or the the bad uh the bad bass note in uh, Gene Genie before they go to the second chorus where the, where the bass player still thinks he's playing the verse uh, and totally okay. flubs <laughs> right, it. You right, know? Right, it's yeah. just, it's charm. Yeah, you know? And you, yeah. you're not going to replicate that by putting everything nose on, on right. one. Right, know? right. Mm -hmm. So the guitars on that record, again, mm -hmm. very different sounding. And, yeah. uh, you know, they're very like distorty you know not not everywhere but you know like a lot of them have got this like distorted points. like yep. uh, kind of you know it is a little bit more of like an industrial metal-y kind of sound on some of those sounds especially on like i feel i feel like it's like the first track especially or something or um it's just i'm i'm just saying that to say that it's it's quite different than <laughs> what they were before well that record we had at least five if not six six uh, different signal paths uh -huh. of guitar amps as well as a direct feed into a huge michael being a keyboard player and again having more gear than anybody should ever be allowed to have uh, he also had these two giant racks that would open up and fold out, good six foot tall, full of either Moog or Surge modular equipment. Yeah. That uh, there's a track called Kiss Me Idol that maybe we should play that not only did he comprise all the drums for it, but he put the guitar part through the these uh -huh. racks of stuff yeah and this is prior to any keyboards being added and the right. keyboards that were added i want to say it was just kind of like a a pad from an arp 2600 mm -hmm. but solos i played through the preamp section of an yeah. arp 2600 right as well as like a direct line and a full complement of valve amps you know right um and you were doing the so you'd just be like in the control room yeah doing that kind yep. of thing and yeah. because of the noise factor and because Michael was pretty attentive to this sort of thing, 
uh, he would not only treat the room, uh, he would get into a control room and hang a bunch of drapes to yeah. deaden them. But in this particular room, he also had the second construct a copper ferret cage. So he built it out of two by four and it had copper mesh all the way around it with the exception <laughs> of the opening. And I sat in that fucking thing for 10, 12 hours a day. And you talk about a headache I after bet. sitting in a copper cage for that long. Oh, man. I feel like it probably did absolutely nothing. He was like just fucking with you. He's like, yeah, right. Guy from the, you know, we're gonna well, put him in and interestingly enough, and Michael is in no way an anti-Semite. In fact, he's Jewish. But one of the telltale signs, and I'm German, my mom was German, so I speak it and read it, walk into the control studio, and he's got a banner hung up above the back of the control, uh, uh, back of the desk that says Arbeit macht frei, which in German means work makes you free. And unironically (laughs) enough and distastefully enough, it was also the the uh arch above auschwitz uh, yeah oh, okay yeah gotcha, so a little gotcha. creepy yeah yeah, yeah. You know, but you uh, saying he had all those old neumann mics and all that yeah, shit too. Yeah. yeah no yeah. so 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 not that guy <laughs> no but, i'm sure but not, yeah. the, michael was and is uh an incredibly brilliant man one right, of these types right. of people that can talk to you about politics or art or right. yeah philosophy had a penchant for louis the 14th cognac and cuban cigars <laughs> right. and got hip to the whole uh you know you can have you can have pot dealers uh bike over here if yeah. you want something yeah. like, really i can do that get him on the phone right perks so, of being a rock yeah I've, I've watched interviews with him on uh studio shows and stuff yeah. where you know and he where some of these things were like he breaks down tracks all super unknown mm-hmm. and stuff like that you know and like yeah he just it's like god damn like those just hearing that it's the same thing i hear you making the record this is endlessly interesting to me yeah how you actually went about making these things mm-hmm. um was one of the tracks you meant is that one of the tracks you brought in yeah it's a song called kiss me idol um maybe if you take it like halfway through towards the outro there's a bunch of stuff that was used in the outro that i believe on the villains record it segues into um or excuse me, on the Frog record, it segues into uh, a song called Headlines. Um, and this track's on the Frog record. It is, right? okay. yeah. But again, this is just a, a rough mix, straight off the console, drums, bass, and guitars. I wanna listen, I'm going to listen to the whole thing. Okay. And you can hear it if you throw your headphones on. Hopefully it's not super loud. Yeah like the electronic stuff and there's electronic stuff on that record and that's yeah. another thing too again like quite different from villains or you know there's not really a lot of that and i love electronic shit so. lots of uh lots of looping of that nature or that uh that fake tambourine that sounds like a sounds like a baby jar full of or a, a baby food jar full of nails sounds good though yeah. you know it's like this sounds great you know Yeah, the wacky. So this is you on a... a, a yeah, this electric. is me playing this portion of it. Yeah. And then the weird breathy stuff that comes up. This is the stuff that Michael... Let the 
Yeah. All that breathy yeah. stuff. I yeah. love that shit, man. Yeah. Did you guys cut this stuff like playing it and then he did all the synths over top of it? I believe we cut it full complement of band uh, and then he ended up removing the drum track and replaced it with this. I see. And then obviously did some processing on Brad's bass for some of that sub stuff. But yeah, and I believe when we tracked it initially, Brian wasn't playing guitar, it was just me. all the the real strange guitar stuff So this stuff here you were doing on guitar? Yeah. Through his modular rig? Yeah. A lot of sample and hold stuff going on. Some white noise stuff. Uh -huh. A lot of... Probably some uh, <laughs> filtering being triggered by LFOs and stuff. Right. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm such a sucker for synths, man. I you am know, too. Swirling around. <laughs> I, got, I got big into the modular thing during COVID. 
for want of anything to do. Right, right. And uh, ended up getting, are you familiar with VCV rack? No, I'm not. You have talked to my friend Mike. I was just talking about he's all over all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, pretty fun to goof around with that yeah. stuff. Yeah, he's got all that crap. His freaking thing is a whole uh, spaceship of, mm. you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, synthesizers are cool. That was, man, that was, thanks for bringing that in. That was great. Oh, yeah. Very cool. And man, damn, Brian can sing, dude. That's a great vocal take. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. But that's not, obviously, that's not the final. I'm going to have to go back and listen to how it ended up on the record. I think actually, what we ended up doing, the, the guitar stuff that becomes a little more prominent towards the end of that fade out i think we ended up doing some editing to feature some of that mm -hmm. because there's a bit of a lull there uh after the vocal stops um and again it was segged into a track called headlines that kind of just morphs into it right 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 yeah, yeah. i always thought so i mean the whole record in general obviously i wasn't into it as much as i was villains at mm -hmm. that time but i also thought that it was underrated and i feel like it, it's did like because it was so different, I think people were like maybe like shocked almost or something at the time. Well, there's a couple of things I think that uh, can account for that. Uh, as far as our fan base went, did I say overrated? I meant underrated. If no, I, I, get, I get well again, <laughs> yeah. depending on who you right, ask. Right. Um, I think with some of our fan base, they might have been expecting maybe something a little more of a return to the yeah. pop smear thing, a little more acoustic based. Okay, yeah. Um, Freshman two, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, all that kind of thing. Um, what had happened was because so much time had amassed between the last record and the the frog record uh unbeknownst to anybody the face of radio had really changed yeah. by that point you know the the whole and i hate this label but the whole new metal thing sure yep. started cropping up so the label and also that was the era of boy bands and stuff too, yeah and that as well uh -huh. um so i think the label got a little concerned about it because they really didn't know how to market it you know, there wasn't yeah. uh, at the extent of maybe a track or two on this record that we could have tarted up and maybe made a little more palatable uh -huh. to that new metal radio thing, which gotcha. we still would have been total fugazi as far as that yeah. goes, because we weren't that type of band. Um, I, I don't know that it served us to have taken as long as we did mm -hmm. because of radio changing that much and right. that uh, the label just had no idea what to do with this record they yeah. really didn't you know they really didn't they put hero out yeah uh, as a single and i know that there was talk of i actually went into station c to track some additional guitars uh, because they were going to create a call-out version for the track television, thinking that they maybe want would want to release that as the next single. Okay, gotcha. So, and then, again, that never happened either. So. That's a good song, too. That, that one's kind of like got some of that maybe yeah, more like... Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of baritone guitar on that record. Oh, interesting. A lot of that growly stuff. You really yeah. hear it on uh, tracks like television or tracks like uh, the F Word. Mm -hmm. have a lot of that it's that nice sonic pocket between the guitar tracks and the bass tracks right. kind of thing right you know? right so the rumor has it that that one is kind of a uh the f word is uh some kind of fuck you to the freshman or something like that is there any truth to that no it's um again i don't want to speak for the writer yeah um but my estimation of that song was 
and I wasn't really a fan of this on this record, and it's such a cliche thing to do, but band releases their first record, maybe is lucky enough to have a smattering of success with it. Mm-hmm. When bands come back and start writing about being in a band yeah 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 the road record right you know i'm sorry but unless you're thin lizzy or somebody fucking save it no one wants to hear that shit yep and f word was you know i've got to get arrested to keep you interested Mm -hmm. that's the tell right there yeah you know i as well as uh there's a couple other songs on that record that kind of hedge their bets in that direction mm. you know that woe begotten rock star uh, life on the road right, is so right. hard oh poor me kind of thing you know it just yeah never yeah. held anything for me you know right 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 so i mean was there videos for that record like for hero there was okay yeah okay yep. yeah that's a good song too I was like that song. I had some clever lyrics too we actually did that video with gregory dark of the dark brother porno empire fame <laughs> okay um nice. yeah and actually julia uh, julie ashton uh for all you 90s porno aficionados <laughs> um she is predominantly featured in the video actually gotcha. don, in the scene that donnie and i are in uh the thing that they did with that video is they separated everybody like brian is just a schmuck walking through a city yeah and all these things like happen directly after he yeah, walks through. I kind of remember this video. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah. Brad's a cop. Uh, uh, Dougie's playing a three-card Monty game. Okay. Donnie and I are piano movers. And uh, that was interesting yeah. because we got to drop a piano from a from a, a crane oh, dolly like for three stories down onto, yeah. onto the concrete. And uh, Brian, because he throws something to the dog that julie is walking the dog runs away and julie runs after the dog and suddenly donnie and i dro- accidentally dropped the piano uh, and would have killed her yeah 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 so, <laughs> yeah up all night writing that treatment that's cool that's cool did you shoot that in new york or something we like? saw it, we shot it in downtown los angeles yeah. yeah how long does it take to actually do a video like that like you that's got to be a few days at least uh right? generally about two and a half to three days yeah. when we did the video for the freshman that came about because at that time we were touring with Kiss and we had just finished some dates. Oh, geez. I, I want to say it was France and or, uh, no, it wasn't France. Excuse me. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We, we were someplace in Europe and we had dates lined up to go to Spain uh, to play in uh, Madrid and Barcelona mm-hmm. or Zaragoza. Excuse me. And but the French truck drivers had gone on strike. then, <laughs> So we could not get transport from tr- French truck drivers through France to get our gear there. And there was even talk at one point of renting to of renting a Russian cargo plane uh, so Kiss could get their production there. Nice. Well, it turned out not to happen. So we ended up going to we ended up going to Belgium, to Brussels, mm-hmm. which was where the next date was. And we hung out for. Oh, which was initially going to be about a week and a half. And Kiss flew home. A couple days into the stay there, we we get word from our management that, hey, read this treatment that I'm going to send you. There's a possibility we could fly to London and, and make this video right. in our downtime, which is what we ended up doing. Nice. Some cold, dank warehouse on the west end yeah. just miserable <laughs> two and a half days of yeah. cold and dracking late night too and stuff like yeah you know calls 
probably nine in the morning, eight mm-hmm. in the morning, and you're there. You know, it's a that's an exercise in futility. That whole right. hurry up and wait thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, to shoot it, but even that video was like two and a half days worth of work. Right. Yep. Yeah. Multiple angles. Yep. And what do you guys do for? Uh, I know, like, I'm pretty familiar with the videos, but I mean, were you guys playing in the video? Like, was it supposed to be like you were playing? Like, you just stand there, like, do they play the song and you play along? Or like... Um, it depends. Like for the villain, for the villains video, uh, all the live footage where you see the band playing in what looks like a parking lot. Yeah. Dean Carr, the guy that directed that video, funny guy. Um, he, uh, he, yeah, he would have a speaker set up and run playback. Okay. Obviously, as you're miming it. Yeah. During the hero video, uh, we're set up in a soundstage. That's, if you don't know, that's Johnny Knoxville introducing us <laughs> before he became yeah. the Johnny Knoxville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, all those, any anything where you're actually kind of performing, yeah, there's a speakers on sticks kind of scenario okay. where you're miming along with gotcha, it. But gotcha, yeah. all the incidental stuff, yeah. Um, I wasn't there through the entirety of the hero video shoot, the bits that Brian shot that didn't feature myself and Donnie. Right. We were doing something else. I forget what, but um, I don't think those had any kind of live replay going on on set. Yeah. But gotcha. Yeah. That's so, yeah. interesting to me. I, I didn't, mean, I didn't know like, you know, I'm sure different directors do a different way, but it's mm-hmm. like, do you, are you sitting there playing this freaking song a million times? You know, Absolutely. like I, I think some photograph was like that. Yeah. And not only with full complement of band kind of up there horsing around, actually that was more, we shot more individual footage of each member playing for uh, the photograph video that they interspersed with full band complement and right. extras jumping right. around on the set than we did yeah yeah i mean did you enjoy that experience or was it miserable for you um i enjoyed it from the standpoint of being able to see how the whole thing breaks down um the whole hurry up and wait thing yeah. was a little arduous i know during the performance bits of hero I forget what happened, but I'm sure we were probably at each other's throats by then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair bet that I drank a good portion of a bottle of Jack Daniels that yeah. day <laughs> before they got us out and performing the, the, the song a, a half a dozen at least right. times to get through it and get camera angles ready and right, all that right. stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's just like anything else. It's, um, it's the love-hate of doing it. Mm-hmm. From the standpoint that um, you hope the end result is going to get you someplace, yeah, yeah. you know, and serve the purpose, but it's the it's the horse shit that you've got to trod yeah. through to get there is usually the stuff that makes it less palatable. Yeah, yeah. cold and tired, and right. it's two in the freaking morning, or yeah. you know, some yeah, shit. Don't want to do this if yeah. I have to hear the song again. Exactly. <laughs> get stabby with somebody. Yeah, for sure. So, how much did you guys like tour in support of the the Frog record? Um, nowhere near as as much as we did for the Villains record. Yeah. Uh, again, because I don't think the label really had an idea how to market it. Um, and by that time, I want to say that the radio festival thing had kind of fallen on its ear a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't so much of a thing. Um, I mean, it's like 
the music that was really a time where the music business changed a lot like, it, like, it did shit, like total request live becoming the thing and you right know, like, and napster the internet and yeah sharing starting to come mm-hmm. into the fold yeah you know it's that whole yeah buy the cow get it for free scenario yeah kind of thing yeah. but um it's like yeah like these musicians i gotta you know you're stealing their record and <laughs> yeah. they're not eating anymore yeah i mean we just did i we did the normal complement of regional and coast to coast kind of stuff but it wasn't a full-blown arduous three-month tour right. like when we did um the summer of 97 we had tonic and case choice out with us ah, i like both those i, I like that tonic song that whatever i can't think of it right now but man that was a good song yeah great record yeah. and great musicians too actually yeah. jeff russo the guitar player is the guy who's scoring the uh, next generation star trek TV oh no series. shit yeah oh okay yep and they're still around they still they still do shows i don't know that jeff's horribly involved with them any longer right okay um and case choice was great too yeah. belgium band yep yep but that that tour was you know three and a half months thereabouts um but yeah for the frog record you know just dates here and there it wasn't a full-blown thing did you guys ever play with goo goo dolls oh yeah we talked about goo goo dolls on here a couple episodes ago i was a pretty big fan of goo goo dolls in, yeah. the, in the day there too yeah in fact we did dates with the goo goo dolls and we were still doing little shitholes like frankie's in toledo and yeah that kind of thing you right. know and those guys were first coming up yeah yep yeah because they were kind of this like weird thing too we talked about this uh, where they were like this kind of like punk rock band and like almost the yeah. bassist sang a lot more and stuff and then they kind of got like I don't know. I, don't, I mean, they did it, but it also, I feel like they kind of got like pushed into this thing where like, you know, they kind of made Johnny be this like sex symbol rock star kind of dude or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And oddly enough, it has a tendency to turn people into adult contemporary acts, right, which right. is kind of what happened with yeah. those guys, mm-hmm. but they still draw. Yeah. They're still yeah. great live. Yeah. You know, well, I was telling the story about how I saw them uh, at the Van Andel here in town and how it was a fucking great show. Yeah. You know, like they absolutely killed. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. That was good shit. Good. What about a uh, Dishwalla? Did you play a Dishwalla? Played a lot of shows with those guys. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. still pals with Rodney, their guitar player. That's cool. Rodney Browning. That was a great song, too. That Counting Blue Car song. And I, yeah. I, as I recall, that CD was great, too. I don't remember a ton about it, but I had that on CD. Yeah. You basically, any of those bands yeah. that were around during the 90s or we played from everybody from to i mean you know your l7s and goldfinger and stabbing westward and that's awesome semi-sonic love them. And, and uh yeah all those bands did you put did you guys play some weird thing i'm picturing dishwalla did this too where it was like I think it might have been like an MTV spring break thing in Miami or some shit. Were you guys playing that too? No, we did a lot of MTV type stuff. We actually did a, when the local cable affiliate in Grand Rapids was threatening to drop MTV, would have been, oh, geez. I I think it was after the Villains tour. My memory's a little spotty with this, but... Actually, we played a lot with Semisonic. We, okay, we yeah. did a lot of dates with them, uh, either in Minneapolis or down in like Kansas and that. And both our records kind of followed one another, where their record got big, and then ours got big, and then their next record got big. So 
did a lot of shows with those guys and we and we played a i want my mtv back show with <laughs> okay. them at devos okay. and it was the impetus was to raise awareness so uh, the local cable a cable affiliate wouldn't drop mtv but yeah but yeah we did like the mtv beach house gig yeah that might be kind with, of what with I'm like thinking about. sugar ray and uh-huh. mighty mighty boss tones yeah. and yeah. smash mouth and mm-hmm. all those bands we were always that yeah turd in the punch like, bowl band. was that like televised or like on MTV? they were taped yeah okay mm-hmm. yeah yeah but another one of those things where you're hanging around all right day and right they... that might be what i'm thinking about mm-hmm. i don't know there's a lot of that stuff again where it's that's a little blurry for me yeah too. a lot <laughs> of that mtv stuff you yeah. know I, uh, more than a f- couple of 120 minutes with matt pinfield oh that's cool man yeah great guy that i was gonna say is matt pinfield as cool as he seems to be (laughs) matt is the smartest guy when it comes to music that i know possibly outside of rest in peace eris hampers yeah sure um you know guys of that elk who are just encyclopedic yeah in their knowledge right right And, and to watch to watch people that think they know their ass from a hole in the ground about how much they know about music and right. watching them have a conversation with somebody like Matt. Yeah, yeah. Hilarious. Yeah, and Matt yeah. Pinfield was, uh, he's who brought Coheed and Cambria into the major label world. Yeah. So he was like their A&R guy or something like that. Yeah, that's right, because he worked for Columbia, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. He, I think it was kind of after that, like the MTV stuff, he went yeah, exactly. and was doing A&R for Columbia or something. Yeah, interspersed in between yeah. uh, stints and radio here right. and there, but super yeah. nice guy. What a, what a wonderful guy. Absolutely yeah. detrimental to us early on. Right. Yep. Any idea? What, I mean, he's still alive and stuff, right? I he's mean, still around. Yeah. I believe he's still in Los Angeles. It's been a while since I've spoken with him right um i know he you know he still does social media here and there but i kind of lost track of him right right um I have to look him up. i think any rock guy of that era knows that benfield and oh has, yeah you know mad respect well, yeah i mean him. anybody who was yeah. anybody who made a video in the 90s yeah. obviously either knew him mm-hmm. or wanted to staying up late watching that oh yeah yep. yeah for sure yep so not a ton of touring for the the frog record no where mm-hmm. where were you guys kind of at like headspace wise there i mean like I, you know again it's a great record i feel like it's a little underrated but didn't have the commercial success that villains had i mean were you guys expecting that were you bummed out were it, you know well i i wouldn't say that we were expecting it i, I think as much as sometimes that we didn't discuss business and i should preface this by saying that with our band it was really kind of unique from the standpoint that we weren't the type of guys that would have hung out with one another and fraternized outside of being in a band together. Right. That's interesting too, yeah. So it had good and bad components to mm-hmm. that. And the good component was that when we got together to work, we worked. We were working, right. We, again, that whole storage space anomaly. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd sit in that damn thing for 10, 12 hours a day playing the chorus of yeah. a song, yeah. trying different ideas. So to that, it suited us well to, I guess, that cliched, hey, we're the monkey's brethren mm-hmm. thing that you find that a lot of bands try to latch on to. I think we learned to like each other kind of after the fact. Right, right. You know, right. and I think there was always a, an underlying yet unspoken respect that we all had for one another. Yeah. I mean, because obviously there would have to be, otherwise somebody yeah, yeah. would have gotten tossed around their ear or yeah. oil spotted while out on the road. Yeah. You know, um, 
But it was more of an elephant in the room for us, I think, with regards to the experience that we had with the Frog record. Mm-hmm. We realized that, yeah, we obviously spent way too long making this record. Yeah, yeah. cost us way too much money. Yeah. And now we're up to our neck in it with the label. Yeah. You know, and they're going to want something that's a little tamer, a little more direct, a little more to the point, a little more radio friendly for the next one around. Yeah, yeah. So I think for all of us in the back of our minds, we knew it, but weren't discussing it directly do you think that like with Beinhorn and with the stuff and even what i was talking about did they try to push you guys into being more like rock industrially like something like that to fit the time well i think the reason that a and r suggested that i go into the studio and re-record some tracks uh from that record I think might have spoke to their fear of that. Right. You know, let's yeah. maybe tart this up a little bit to yeah. make it a little yeah. more radio friendly. You know, put the put radio the, friendly for the time. For the time, yeah. exactly. Yeah, which yeah. is which is crazy. And so I have this kind of like dual thought where obviously I love that kind of sound anyway, mm-hmm. but then it's like with something like the Verve Pipe that really kind of wasn't that kind of sound. Was it like? I don't know. In hindsight, do you feel like that was maybe a mistake and you should have just kind of kept doing what you were doing or like, well, again, being, being young and experienced that first time around, I don't necessarily think that the villains record was a detriment to us. In fact, I think quite the opposite. It it helped Yeah, because it was so, I don't know if streamline or plaintive are the right words, right. but at least it was kind of down that alley yeah. of all these songs kind of smell of the same ingredient. Mm-hmm. You, you listen to a record like Pop Smear, the one prior to it, you've got stuff like Out Like a Lamb, which is this ballad about David Koresh, of all people, <laughs> to yeah. stuff like Spoonful of Sugar and Victoria or the end of the song Is It Worth It, where things get big and blown up and... Mm-hmm. A little more epic for a lack of a sadly overused word. Yeah. With um with the frog record, again, because of the time frame that it took and the state of radio changing yeah. like it did. And quite frankly, I don't think that the label really had an idea of what they were getting into with us. Yeah. With where we came from from a songwriting standpoint. Right. I think we would have been just as happy writing an adult contemporary record mm-hmm. that we were happy with the songwriting on yeah. as we would have been this huge, big bombastic thing that could have blown up and sold millions of copies and right, could have been right. the coolest thing ever. You know, mm-hmm. it just, I don't think that was in our DNA. So almost in a way then it's almost the villains record for you guys is almost the outlier in that way where these other ones are kind of like kitchen sink and songs can be different from one another where villains is much more like everything's kind of this like concise rock song from front to back. Uh, Yeah. To a point I would agree with that. I think that at that point, you know, how everybody carried their CD collections around and those Bibles that we used to call them. Yep. Had you spent five minutes going through everybody's record collection, yeah, you probably would have been pretty shocked. Right. I mean, for yeah, myself yeah. personally, I mean, you know, it varied from Motorhead to Streisand, uh, yeah. Prefab Sprout to King Crimson to yeah. Old Yes yeah. to whatever, mm-hmm. you know, King's Axe, yeah, that kind of stuff. Well, and, I think that's super important. I think anybody that's serious about music is like that. You know, right. if you're just into like this one genre or something, you're probably not like real serious about. Well, music and for anymore. us, because we were such students of of 
wanting to become better songwriters yeah yeah you know it it also kind of bridges that gap from what we've really enjoyed on this side of the pond to mm-hmm. stuff that was tried and true be it yeah of course yeah the beatles yeah. to xtc to joe jackson to the mm-hmm. jam to old Elton john right right you right. know where it's just song it's yeah, about the song yeah. brian's know? a pretty big fleetwood mac guy i think if yeah, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. I've seen him do some Fleetwood Mac stuff recently. Yeah, on, uh, on social media, I would <laughs> think a bigger Alton fan. He was a well, yeah. huge Bob Mould fan, big Sugar okay. fan, um, who's a do fan. Uh, not so much a replacements fan, if I remember correctly. But uh, yeah, it yeah. was uh, it was interesting all the different backgrounds that we right. came from. Yeah. musically, and that's cool. And then it all kind of y'all kind of put it together into this you know thing that's quote-unquote alternative rock yeah know, whatever that meant exactly yeah, yeah. alternative yeah. to me means like rem in this in the yeah. 80s you right. know college rock yeah kind of thing yeah well to me coming up a little later to me it was you know what they called alternative rock which i guess it was was that kind of 90s stuff and sure then, you yeah. know and you guys were maybe a little bit on the tail end of that but it was still very much like mm-hmm. the alternative rock and i mean like you know we'd go down i was at every single one of the freaking grd and koq things downtown right here at monroe and stuff and I, I know i saw the verve pipe down there at least once if not a couple yeah. times you know and yeah maybe even yeah. with uh papa vegas and molly yeah. playing with us yep yep, yep. and yeah. uh oh i remember one uh you remember Botfly? played a lot of yeah, shows well, with those boys there was one in particular i remember that was Botfly opening for Maybe ah, I couldn't be getting it wrong. I was pretty young, mm-hmm. but I think they were opening for you guys. It might have been Papa Vegas, but I think it was Botfly and the Verve Pipe. I think headlining it was down there, probably us. And it was I think what, it like, was like down in front of the museum. Yeah, it was whatever Millennium. whatever Rosa Parks used to be or whatever, because it was different back then. It was bigger and it had the big steps. Yeah, like, we, well, bigger I don't stage. think we ever played Rosa Parks Circle or was it or just Square. called Row? It was Millennium Park. Okay, yeah, that's probably what it was. Yeah. And, and I was literally 13 years old and where, you know, where this like, where the river was like right in back of the stage yeah yeah yep, and up the yep, hill yeah yep. that's millennium park okay, it's in front okay, of uh, yeah, the ford yeah. museum and i'm from muskegon so it was like we would drive out oh, okay. you know and i was going with my brother and his friends who were four or five years older than me and mm-hmm. i was just kind of the kid who was kind of tagging along so i got to see a ton of my favorite bands out yeah there i played a show. lot of shows with those yeah. guys those guys were terrifying back in the day Botfly. one of those bands that they'd get done with their set and i was like holy fuck i need to find five minutes someplace and get warmed up because <laughs> right, these guys right. were great yeah yeah i remember specifically that show we ended up talking to them after the fact and they were going after that down to play the intersection at like one in the morning yeah probably yeah <laughs> you know? probably yep, yeah they were like well set. we're gearing up but they're like come down we're playing the mm-hmm. intersection again or whatever good bunch yeah. of guys love all those guys that's cool been that's a long cool. time since i've seen a handful of them i saw yeah. griff two years ago and he still does stuff with the pipe still oh, plays yeah. harp with him you know? oh that's cool mm-hmm. okay i didn't i didn't realize yeah, he that was yet. doing that when i was still on the bam interesting yeah, yeah interesting Dragon. i saw uh, are you a fan of our lady peace Almost auditioned for those guys once. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did audition for those guys. Did you really? And here's what I mean by that is after probably the same time when their guitarist uh, quit, Mm -hmm. um, which is that I could talk for days about Our Lady Peace, but uh, 
they held like open auditions, right? right? And again, this was I, at this time I was maybe sixteen or something, so I videotaped myself nice. playing a couple other songs, uh-huh. and and it was on a fucking camcorder, you know, in my bedroom. Right. Obviously, I had no shot of making this band being like sixteen years old and high probably had just as much a shot as anybody <laughs> did. Yeah. So anyway, I, I wish I still had that tape because it's probably pretty hilarious. Me playing like Superman's dead, and then I just was like noodling, like kind of showing them what I could do or whatever and like it's probably pretty embarrassing there now. were yeah there were a couple <laughs> points throughout my tenure in the band where i got i got called and said hey do you, would you feel like auditioning and right our lady piece was one yeah that would have been a good fit for limp you. biscuit was another yeah one. that they did that whole thing too yeah, <laughs> and i actually it was through our our monitor guy had suffered a really bad fall and hurt himself to the point where he was in rehab for quite a while at Mary Freebed, and yeah. because of the nature of his accident, we couldn't have him on a tour bus right. because of the physical limitations, and I'll leave it at that. But once he got better, and now he's like running monitors for Springsteen. Oh, sweet. Go figure. But yeah. at that time, he was working with, with Lip Biscuit and asked me if I'd right. be interested in auditioning. And I'm like, yeah. you know, I've seen myself in a baseball hat. Yeah. And I just don't look good. <laughs> well, that dude, uh, that guitarist dude. Uh, Wes. Borland. Wes, yeah. Yep. Uh, I played a show with his other band after he quit okay. uh, at the intersection. Great player. And so I got to talk to him for a little while. Yeah. And he, you know, of course, he was wearing all the crazy makeup and everything. Because sure. he's a mega tool fan. So he was right. doing the, uh, the Maynard kind of thing okay. or whatever, you know. Yeah. And of course. Maynard was doing it because Peter Gabriel was doing it before him. You yeah, know, it always goes back. But it's funny. And I got a day away from flying out to Los Angeles to audition for Alanis Morissette's band. Oh, that's cool. And you, at, you actually auditioned. You did it. You well, um, as it happened, they only wanted people to learn these three songs, right. whatever they were. Yeah. Me being me, I go out and buy the entire catalog, and I had yeah. it down front and back and upside down whatever i couldn't play a single song now <laughs> yes yeah, sure. but um i called them the day before my scheduled flight just to say had, had there been any changes to the itinerary everything's still copacetic and her manager was like yeah you know we were just about to make some phone calls apparently atlantis has, has found somebody an old friend of hers in new york okay so we're not going to need you to come out after all and uh, i was like oh good thing i called so fast forward, uh, maybe about a year after that, this would have been during the Winter Olympics when Jay Leno was having bands play nightly from, and I forget if it was Lake Placid or something. Okay. Yeah. Um, but she was slated to play one night. And I was like, holy oh, wow, well, I got to watch this and right, yeah. see who got this gig. So comes time for the big guitar solo. And I'm like, okay, here we go checking this guy out this guy walks to the front of the stage to put on this big show and i could see it happen because the camera angle was was open enough to where i could see this go down his guitar cable got caught underneath his pedal board <laughs> and the minute he jumped to the limp of the stage to put his foot on the monitor and show yeah. off his pedal board went upside down and oh, unplugged his rig yeah and i thought that'll learn you because yeah. i would have never done that <laughs> you know so I, a little poetic justice was served that day i think yeah but you, you know. did actually like but did you play the songs with alanis no singing? i never i never flew out oh okay this sorry was, i missed uh, uh, yeah this okay. was the day prior to me flying out when i was told no she got somebody already, oh so. okay Okay, sorry, sorry, gotcha. Yeah, That's so, too bad. So yeah, yeah, me watching it 
uh, later oh, on okay. was more of a kind of a schadenfreude okay. moment. That's know? kind of bullshit they didn't let you at least do the audition. Usually it's like, even if they kind of have settled on somebody, I, yeah, I yeah whatever. Yeah. Was Taylor know. Hawkins playing in the band at that time or was that I after? I don't know. I couldn't tell you quite yeah. honestly. Yeah. I didn't know a thing about her other than right. the couple of songs I'd heard on the radio and the fact that she was huge. And yeah. I thought, well, yeah. yeah, the verb pipe thing isn't going great. You know, right. geez, if this could even right. morph into something, you know, open some doors perhaps. Yeah, for you sure. Know, for yeah, sure. That was all about it. Yeah, that was that was actually kind of what I was driving. I was, did you get to meet Taylor Hawkins? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Got to meet quite a, meet quite a few people. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Any of the Foo Fighters guys? You ever meet Dave Grohl or anything? Met that? Dave once. Yeah. yeah, they were for a brief moment label mates of ours at RCA. Okay. And I met him just briefly in passing in right. the hallway. Yeah. I think I was going to the building to hang out with Yeah. Uh, Elise Koleski, who is still a dear friend of mine. She was one of the VPs of sales for the label. Okay. So whenever we were in New York and had a, a dull day, and I wanted to go hang out and listen to some good music and maybe smoke a joint with Elise mm. in her office. Right. I would right. go do that. So yeah, I happened to run into him then. Oh, that's cool. But even, even that, even that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and super, super nice guy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We could talk about all that too. <laughs> I don't know if you want to record all that, but, um, drugs, what we were talking about though, before we took a break there was, uh, this I wasn't really clear on too because uh, I was still kind of following the band at that time. Was Brad just kind of like he quit? Was there some point during this time? Like yeah, Brad had. Um, well, this was about halfway through the recording of the last record, and that was the underneath record that yeah. Adam Schlesinger did for right. us. Um, we had we did it at, at a place called Engine Studios in Chicago, which was a residential studio. So they had three apartments in the building that myself and Donnie and Doug stayed in, and then Brad and Brian were in a hotel someplace. Okay. So it was already that kind of divisional thing. Uh, what had compounded the issue was the fact that uh, Donnie had written the bulk of, I guess, what could be considered the more radio-friendly material on that record. Yeah. And for whatever reason, Brian wasn't having it. Um, and I don't know if it was strictly a capitalist leaning right. with regards to publishing money. Uh -huh. Or Brian became a little more, if I don't write the lyrics, I'm not singing it kind of thing because I got to feel it. Oh, it's like, yeah, I, I, I'm a little bit like that myself. I, I can understand it to a point. But then yeah. again, part of me also thinks it's bullshit because... Mm. As a guitar player, playing this material that he's written, right? I'm basically having to dictate what he has done. Yeah, so unless yeah. I can put my own spin on it, right? Why am I even here? Yeah, you know, right? Write a chart, hire a union guy. Yeah, or do it yeah. yourself. You know, and there is certain singers are really good at like interpreting other people's lyrics or singing it or making it their own. I mean, like you know the guy from the who and what i mean there's many examples of this you oh know? sure but yeah on the other hand being a singer myself i kind of can get that too like or at least yeah i could see it both ways I can well, see well ways. i mean at least to have the ability to do some editing yeah, is certainly yeah. something that i don't think anybody would object to right but in in order to say i'm not going to do this unless yeah it's yeah, a little yeah. too much of an ultimatum and as a result there were daily 
arguments and conference calls where Brian is in one room, Donnie's in another room, and they're both on speakerphone to our manager. Oh, geez. Yeah. And interspersed with Adam Schlesinger coming into the room and giving <laughs> his two cents about things. Right. So, yeah, it got kind of contentious. So, I digress. Long story short, Brad ended up not returning after a Christmas break. Okay. It would be... Um, we would work Monday through Friday, and then I would drive home Friday night to Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. I would drive back Sunday uh, to Chicago. Um, so at least I had you know, some kind of semblance of home life. I could do some wash, whatever. Right, yeah. I had a drink with somebody. Um, yeah, Brad just decided not to return. And it kind of left us in a lurch with the exception of, fortunately for us, our producer was also a pretty yeah, damn good bass player. player. Yeah, right. So I want to say there's maybe one track, and I couldn't pinpoint what it is that I'm actually playing bass on. I was wondering that too. But I think the rest of the stuff that Brad did not track was done by Adam. So did did they keep the stuff he had done, or was it like? You I know, think they did. Yeah. yeah, and I would really have to sit yeah. down. It's, and, it could even be freaking this chorus, this verse. Who knows? Right. You know? yeah, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. we ended up, and the engineer on the record was a guy by the name of John Holbrook, uh, English gentleman who is no longer with us, sadly. Uh, as is Adam, no longer with us. Uh, uh, John yeah. was an English guy, um, probably in his sixties by then. Mm-hmm. And thanks to John, I love a cup of Earl Grey in the <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> you know, a little milk and sugar right. is the way to go. Nice. But John had worked with everybody from, he did a lot of work with Todd Rundgren. Oh, He cool. did all the Brian Setzer big band records. Yeah, also very cool. So, yeah. Super nice guy and incredibly intelligent and knew his way around a pearl to his rig. And So do you think he, I mean... Do you think he just left because he was pissed for his brother? Was he just not loving the whole situation and wanted out? Well, again, I'm reticent to speak for anybody, but from how I, from how I understand it, he was not happy that that Donnie had not only written the lion's share of what could be considered the more radio friendly stuff, yeah, but I think stylistically. It kind of put a hair across Brad's ass too. Okay, I think he was a little more. A little more of a want to play some things that were a little heavier in yeah, nature, yeah, as opposed to some of the poppier things that are on that record, right, right, know. right. So, and Donnie, um, I mean, to his credit, Donnie, a really talented guy, great writer, incredible drummer, an yeah, amazing singer. Yeah. Um, Does he sing a lot of them harmonies that you hear that's all not? All the high okay. stuff. Okay. Basically, yeah. any predominant harmony that you hear on a verb okay. record is Donnie singing. Cool. Yeah. Um, but Donnie kind of had, I guess, what I would couch as a issue with acceptance, where he really wanted more recognition, I think, than he thought that he was getting. Okay, because he just like just the drummer, or thought you know. <laughs> well, to live in the shadow of somebody like Brian, yeah. who was a good writer and good singer and and good frontman and all that. Yeah. Um, and the way he described it, it was kind of like, did I catch this right? Where it was kind of like Donnie's band and Brian's band kind of combined to combine. Uh, correct. First, so like yeah, maybe he kind of I felt don't like, think it was so egocentric in donnie's case yeah or even driven by capitalism in donnie's case i think it was just 
I always have this hackneyed saying about Donnie, and I regret it now, but I'll say it anyway. Donnie always then struck me as the seventh child in a family where a six-piece chicken dinner is being served every night. Right. Where he's constantly scrambling for recognition and attention. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, if he's a super talented dude, I kind of get and, that. And, you and know, he like, should yeah. be recognized yeah, for yeah. Sure. Especially Absolutely. if he is contributing all these things, you know. Absolutely. Like, just getting pigeonholed as just the drummer. I can see why that would, you know. But it really kind of set a divide in the whole thing. Right. And, and where Donnie had a miserable time working with Beinhorn to the point where Beinhorn wouldn't allow anybody else other than the person who was working in the room. Oh, wow. Including A&R staff from the label. He would send the second outside at right track if he had an inkling that Maloof was going to show up and tell him, you're not allowed in here. Wow. You know, this is Jeez. a closed session. And definitely did the same thing with Donnie. In fact, with Donnie, what he did, which I thought was a stroke of brilliance, was once we got basic rhythm tracks recorded and started working in earnest on guitar overdubs, Michael, on a daily, would have our engineer, Barry Goldberg, he did the chronic record of all things. <laughs> nice. Yeah, small little Jewish guy, really funny, <laughs> super ear, wonderful guy, just a joy to be around. He would have Barry burn Donnie a two-track copy of that day's work, and Donnie would import that stuff into his digital eight-track machine and go sit in some spare room in the studio and work on background vocals. Oh, That was Michael's ploy to keep Donnie busy. Out of the room or something, yeah. Of 85 to probably 90% of those ideas were never incorporated. Very yeah. little background singing on that record. Oh. And some of the singing that's on that record, like on the F word, you have a female voice, and I can't even tell you who that was. Right. But the... Um, the male singer on the track Hero is Craig Wedren from a band called Shudder to Think. Okay. And then after Brad left the band, he joined a band that Craig was was running called Baby. Kind of a New York art rock kind of thing. All right. So, yeah, <clears throat> to come full circle, after Brad left, it kind of left us in a lurch. And we knew that we were going to have to find... We finished the record... And then because of subsequent dates that we had booked and then Brad wasn't going to be doing them, yeah. we knew we had to find a bass player. Right. So we did a small little cattle call where we flew a bunch of people out to audition. No one really knocked us out. It was either, it was a lot like when we first got signed. Every potential A&R person that we met constantly talked about their pedigree. Yeah. We didn't give a fuck about that. <laughs> okay. We didn't. Yeah. We just wanted to know, that's great. I, no one gives a shit who you worked with. What are you going to do with us? Mm -hmm. And the guy who eventually signed us, Brian Maloof, was the first and frankly only guy that he came and saw us at a, at a blind pig gig. Mm -hmm. And when we met with him afterwards, he had a copy of the set list that he had snarfed up off the stage and had notes for each song. Here's what I would do with this. Here's what I would do oh, with that. Cool. So, and not that we agreed with everything. Yeah, and as time yeah. went on, we kind of realized that, you know, we didn't yeah. really kind of see eye to eye. But well, at, at least, least he's thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And it wasn't all about him. And sadly, a lot of these bass players that we auditioned were cut from that same piece of cloth. Right, you know? right, right. This is what I've done. No one fucking cares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we got a week into this, and I, I'm, I might be mistaken, but I'm almost 100% certain that it was my idea to suggest Joel okay. Ferguson yeah. for, for the role. 
mainly because he plays everything. Mm. We know him. Mm. He is a no drama kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. There couldn't be anybody more malleable. Yeah. Not not that Joel's not his own man, but yeah. there certainly can, couldn't be anybody more willing to kind of jump into the fold. Right, right. And and to kind of from see Grand Rapids too. Right. You know, yep. Stuff with still kind of fits. Yeah. Yep. So and that worked. That worked incredibly well. Joel just kind of became another buffer. Yeah. Between some of the dysfunction that had settled in by then. Gotcha. But yeah. the, the the record was complete by this point that you were you were trying yeah, to Yeah, we tracked it yeah, already. Okay. Gotcha, yep. gotcha. Yep. Didn't Brad go play am I remembering right? Didn't he go play with Dashboard Confessional? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that he did, and I could be wrong. That's completely from memory from twenty plus I'm years ago. I'm not really sure. I should ask him about that. Yeah. Um I believe that he that he did or it, it like could that. very well be yeah. i know he kind of had his hands on a few different things and actually yeah. Yeah. even appeared on an episode of sex in the city <laughs> that's cool <laughs> yeah, yeah. some hot dude in the yeah, bar yeah, yeah. which is probably what he's credited with yeah. and rightfully indeed, so indeed. that handsome bastard yeah, that he is tall blonde sons of bitches right yeah <laughs> exactly the rest yeah. of us never stood a chance yeah you're not a short man though dude. you're pretty I, tall <laughs> i've got some length to me yeah, yeah but again yeah. It, just, it just wasn't my thing yeah yeah. So uh, working with Adam Schlesinger, for, first of all, how did, again, like, was there like a cattle call of producers? They're, they're like, you know, like, here's who's available, here's who wants to do it. Like, how'd you get hooked up? Because I'm a big Fountains of Wayne fan. So. Yeah, I don't recall there being a big rush of people that we sat with to talk to. And if there were, it might have happened outside the auspice of, of a full man thing. Right. With Adam, um, that was another Los Angeles meeting uh, in some conference room at the label. Yeah. Um, we met with him for a day. I don't know that everybody was 100% sold on him, myself included, mainly from the standpoint that while I was smart enough to realize that there was no way that we were going to be able to self-produce a record mm -hmm. because it would have been the end of us. We would have never gotten it done. I also thought that I don't necessarily agree that it's a good idea to have somebody, and this is not a knock against Adam, who I had a lot of respect for, uh, but I don't think it's a good idea to necessarily have a peer producing us. Mm -hmm. I would rather reach into some sort of bag and have somebody with a, a bit more of an astute of a track record right, right. than Adam did at that time. Yeah to handle this right. mainly because we knew, Hey, this is our last contractual record with the label. Yeah. If it falls on its face, then you yeah. know, this could very well spell the end of this. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So it does seem like he is a good fit for producing the verve pipe though. You know? Well, I would think yes and no. And the reason that I say that was because he came from a pop background, obviously, yeah. which is, Again, knee-jerk reaction to the record prior. I think it was exactly what we needed. We yeah. kind of needed to get back into a little more of that right. yeah. short, concise, mm -hmm. song, songcraft kind of thing. Yep, yep. Um, Which he's kind of a fucking... I mean, not kind of. He was a master at that. Oh, he's like, great at yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know? um, but then again, some of the ideas that I thought that he brought forth, at least from my perspective as a guitar player... I thought were a little lackluster or even, heaven forbid I use this overused word, but a little pedestrian. Yeah. Case in point, Donnie had written a song called Happiness Is, which 
I had worked on with him recording a demo. We had show day one day in Arkansas that it was rainy and we were stuck on the bus. Donnie brought his four track out, blah, blah, blah. I recorded some guitar tracks. And the song is real. It's a straightforward pop song. No, nothing special about it. But yeah. the version that Donnie had presented to me was a little more akin to say something with a little more swivel to it, a little more from the hip, a little more of mm-hmm. a Rolling Stones kind of a thing. Right. Where Adam wanted the electric guitars clean and pristine. Yeah, I could see and that. Just glassy. And yeah. I was like, you know, and after arguing with them about this for the better part of a couple hours and then breaking for lunch and then resuming the argument, <laughs> it was like, I, you know what, at the sake of putting this thing to bed, we'll try it your way. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, this is not the way to go about this because frankly, this is an, is not indicative of who we are as a band. Right. You know? Right. I don't mind the variance of, of a catalog in regard with respect to treating each song as its own entity. If yeah. it requires something a little jazzy or a little country or a little pop or nothing at all, if it suits the song, then that's what we'll do. But in this instance, I just it just wasn't jiving with me. Right. So fast forward to two, three weeks after we're done tracking the record, I get a phone call one day. And again, at this point, I was living up above Station C. I get a phone call from my A&R guy which never happened so right away i'm i know something's wrong right foot and after two minutes of pleasantries he's like so hey the reason that i'm calling is i'm wondering how you would feel about maybe readdressing some of these guitar parts and i'm like brian let me stop you right there it's this song this song this song (laughs) and more than likely happiness is and he's like how do you know I said, it, it doesn't matter. Just <laughs> right, when, right. when do yeah. you want me to, to schlep my gear downstairs and we can record this stuff? So right, right. we ended up retracking guitars for that and kind of filthied them up a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So, Well, I think that record sounds great. I threw it up actually just today mm-hmm. um, and listened to like the first like four songs. And yeah. I was like, man, this fucking record's awesome. Like I was actually kind of surprised too at how well I remembered those songs too. I was like, oh yeah, I remember this song. It's a fucking good song. We had which probably amounts to my favorite review ever on that record because the critics fucking hated us. Yeah, yeah. And you were mentioning this earlier about acceptance that um, the critics did not like the villain's record, thought it was derivative, and some of them were probably right to say that considering the state of radio at the time. The Frog record didn't sell, but it seemed that critics actually liked that record a little okay. better. Yeah. And maybe it was because of having somebody like Michael in the fold, right. a little more credibility, yeah. especially with his background with Bill Laswell and the band material. And okay. That, um, with the last record, the, again, the best review I read was done by a playboy reviewer and it was really short and concise, almost to the point of shit sandwich. That <laughs> it was. Uh, this band is about as welcome as Katie Lang at an orgy. Oh no! <laughs> and, and I, I clipped it. I at times had it as the lock screen on my phone. Mm-hmm. I think I even blew it up and put it in the studio one day when we were that's working on other tracks. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. as a reminder. Yeah. So I think that's kind of bullshit though, because those are again listened to it. I was like, this is actually really good. I kind of like in some ways, 
felt like it was more and again being the villains fan i was it was like this sounds kind of like more of a return to form to me i, you know? I, I wouldn't disagree with that yeah. yeah i i think there's a lot of things about that record that are a little more indicative yeah. of what yeah. was at the core yeah. of the band sounds know? great too did adam mix it too no uh bob claremont mixed it. oh well jesus christ yeah. and can't go know, wrong there yeah and i I'm, first of all again i'm a big adam schlesinger fan mm-hmm. i was a huge fountains of wayne fan did you guys play with fountains of wayne at never all? did a show together okay yeah Yeah. um i don't know that those guys were totally ass deep in that whole radio festival thing like we were right right and even with us i mean after a fashion once you get a single or two on the radio and can kind of establish your name yeah i think radio festivals at that point became less detrimental to helping to break a band right yeah uh despite the fact that i can't imagine what kind of liability was involved for these radio stations to to have to to uh, obtain to put those types of shows on yeah well i was a huge into phones wayne like their first two records especially their second records called Mm -hmm. utopia parkway i still play that one all the time Um, and then their third record, which is the one with Stacy's mom on it, mm-hmm. also a great record. Yeah. And that's the one with Hackensack on it, which yep. we'll, we'll get to here in a second. Yep. But uh, they were a little bit in the same position uh, in a way, although it, it was a little later where they scored this huge radio hit with Stacy's mom. Mm-hmm. And it very much kind of like pigeonholed them into this thing. And, right. and, and I mean, they kind of were that thing. They had these kind of like a little bit goofy lyrics and they were a little bit irreverent and funny and, mm-hmm. you know, these sort of beatlesy poppy weird songs right. and stuff but uh i know that i i actually read an interview with adam schlesinger talking about it where they were like we knew like he was like we weren't sure we even wanted to do this because we knew it was going to be a hit yeah and we knew it was going to put us in this position mm-hmm. but at the same time i don't think they were exactly like you know at some point you got to eat too you know so i think well, they were kind of like doing three records prior and having the benefit of whatever hindsight is involved in that to say that you wouldn't want to record a song that you're almost <laughs> yeah. certain is going to yep. do that yep. to you yep. is probably a pretty cogent thing to yeah. have in your mind, yet yeah. alone blurt it the fuck out loud. Yep. You know, yeah. but it, you know, it served him well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't imagine what the publishing royalties were like yeah. as a recipient of yep. that, that co-credit. Yep. Uh, and so I just, but I, I think that him, him and, uh, it's Chris Collinwood, Collingswood or whatever. Yeah. The, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the singer in the band who yeah. also is an amazing songwriter too. Yeah. They're, they're to me, another one of these partnerships that's just kind of like, to me, at least sort of like legendary where like neither one, they both had success elsewhere mm-hmm. and Adam wrote a lot of songs for other people and yeah. produced and stuff. But like, there's something about when those two guys were in it together, you know, that just kind of created. This yeah. Thing. There's something about that. And I, and I can honestly say that you could almost point that towards the Brian and Donnie contingent in right. our band. Yeah. That when they weren't at each other's throats. Yeah. Yeah. It was hugely beneficial for right. our band. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. but I do know, uh, hearing Adam speak of it, that there were some issues with Chris. Yeah. Uh, some, no, some, I know that some the, substance yeah. issues. Yeah. Yeah. That I know uh, that those two, you know, were doing this sometimes. Too. I was they were say, best friends. Too, right. And, and yeah. That's how it is. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yep. You probably argue most with the ones you love the yeah. most at yeah. times. Yeah. Um, and they were both like 
kind of doing the thing too i think a little bit toward the end there too of like this is my song this is your song because they right. would both pretty equally come in with like you know 50 50 ish mm -hmm. songs or whatever you know and, and i part of me almost feels bad having this discussion because a lot of the bands that i guess could have been considered our contemporaries back then didn't really listen to a lot of them yeah there were a handful of people that were probably enough outside of our scope to where i'm gonna put this record on and i don't think it's gonna influence me right like the blue like that, obviously yeah. like the the weezer blue album yeah i mean yeah. who didn't love that record for sure yeah. you know but uh and there was another band are you familiar with a band called self uh not anymore anyway. they were a nashville <laughs> band they had uh they had a pseudo hit with a song called so low okay um, sounds kind of familiar there was a lot of those bands and then they did then. a record called gizmatron which was basically all done with children's toys okay and there's yeah. a that's the yeah. amp, that's the uh record that uh trunk full of amps is on and a great version of right. uh, What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers. Okay. <laughs> and it's all done with kids' toys. That's you know, yeah. Great, great album. But yeah. yeah, those, you know, maybe a handful of bands that I would have considered, not even to say that we were equals, but, yeah, yeah. you know, contemporaries, colleagues, right. you know, guys yeah. that were out doing the same yeah. circuit. Yeah. And, well, I would certainly say Fountains of Wayne fits right in that. Thing. that yeah, that, maybe. Yeah. That's why I'm thinking, like, it It actually really makes sense, like, that Adam Schlesinger would have produced a verb pipe record. I got 100%. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense to me as an outsider. Yeah. That. For me at that point, too, I, I know Donnie was really hot on Adam. I don't know that yeah. Brian necessarily was. Well, I could see if Donnie is trying to come in with more poppy songs or something it like that. I could see why he would, because, that, you know, Adam Schlesinger was very much like, you know, the polished pop. It's it's rock, but in those pop arrangements. Right, of and yeah. Donnie, not a dumb guy. He yeah. definitely took full advantage of that and right. tried to... Well, I, w I won't say he tried to get close to, to Adam. I think he genuinely, genuinely liked yeah. Adam. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I know that they did some things after the fact. That's cool. uh, yeah. And kept in touch. So, but yeah, Adam was a great guy. He, uh, very smart, very, uh, very concise. The, you always kind of knew... Um, not only where you stood with him with regards to, you know, you work with some producers and you get done recording a track and then there's nothing. Right. You yeah. know, or you get done working with other guys and saying, hey, that was pretty good. We might have it. Would you like to come in and listen? Yeah. Versus coming into the room and hearing, wow, that was fucking great. Right. You know, um, Adam kind of straddled that line between the last two examples of that. Mm. But, um, he wasn't a taskmaster, but he was very organized. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't any downtime with him. Right. He um, does seem like the kind of guy who would like know what's next. Well, you know? and I think it speak it spoke well in his favor from the standpoint that he came from a, back, a band background. Yeah. And knew how expensive studio time right, was. Right, right, right. Just basically just let's just get down to the work of it. Right, know? right, we can, right. We can argue about all this shit after the fact. Yeah. And I know? think that, I mean, it's pretty obvious in his songwriting and stuff too. I, I mean, that seems like a guy who generally loved music. You know? Oh, yeah. Like just 
like knew every I'm sure he knew every Beatles song and everything yeah, through another and through. encyclopedic yeah, kind of guy I, I yeah. can see that mm-hmm. so I'll quickly tell you my seeing Fountains of Wayne live story and then we'll listen to the, uh, okay. the track you guys did uh, I went to Bonnaroo and like it was I guess it was 2007 we got into an argument with Mike about what year it was remember but uh, uh, it's like the second day um, I see that Fountains of Wayne is playing. I know that I definitely want to see that because I've been a big fan for a long time. You know, right. it is like 2007. It's a little bit after their, you might say, heyday or something. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like, you know, those festivals they start at like the music starts at noon or one or something, right? Or even like 11 a.m. and uh, they got all the different stages. And so I'm going over. I know they're going on at like 1 p.m. or something. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not headlining it, obviously, or nothing. And right. So I'm wandering my way over there, and I'm by myself. Nobody I'm with has even heard of Phones Away. You yeah. know, so it's just me. Um, And the band that was playing before them is one of these, like, Irish punk bands. They're like that band that does that, like... Well, like, like the Dropkick Murphys or yes, something? Yes, it's right. like that. It okay. might have even been them or, <laughs> or one of the other or Social ones. D or something? Yes. Yeah. Right. And this place is fucking packed. Yeah. And people are going nuts. Yeah. Like, and it's like, again, it's like 11 a.m. Like, this is like... And, I mean, it's like... Full on like mosh pits, like everybody's like leather jacket, like punk, you know, the Irish punk thing. Yep. People are probably beating each other with whiskey bottles and shit. I Guy, mean, it guys is, that can't be bothered to look at the time and pace dude, themselves. It yeah. is pandemonium, <laughs> right. right? This band is full bore. People are stage diving and everything. Mm-hmm. They get done and the place just empties <laughs> you know Funny. and yeah. so fountains of wayne's coming up next basically mm-hmm. not any of those things right. like this shoegaze nerd rock whatever mm-hmm. kind of thing you know and so they're setting up they got like you know it's basically just them setting up their own gear they got right. maybe two guys with them you know or whatever and it's like me and like five other people Wow. And it's like, we're in this, you know, the, they're kind of these big barn things that these festivals play in. Okay. And like, I'm kind of looking around and there's just nobody. And then like, so they come out and they start playing their set. And then like Chris, like he literally calls it out. He's like, who has a tough act to follow? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just like oh, coming man. out here playing, you know. These... I can't tell you how many times that would happen. How many <laughs> yeah. times we had to follow Goldfinger. Yeah. Same kind of Holy deal. Yeah. Just intense, yeah. like, yeah. you know, and, and great guys. And I, I love Charlie, their guitar player, to death. He's a, a, just a super guy. But having to follow that band when stylistically we're not even in the same goddamn zip code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was just always yeah. a little nerve-rattling. You were pretty big into Goldfinger in the day, weren't you? I yeah. love those guys. And, yeah. and I've got to jump in with an ignorant question because this has always been something that's been on my mind. When, when you're putting shows together, not you specifically, but just like how do those thought processes work and what well, how are those decisions made? Like some of those bands are so disparate. I know, yeah. And to that point, if you're talking about a radio festival, it was essentially bands that were either trying to get airplay or bands that had seen some subsequent airplay by that station. And that's not to discount any sort of jiggery pokery with any kind of payola that yeah, sure. never stopped. Yeah, that stuff was still prevalent. You know, it just took on a different form. Right. Um. In in this case, I know I'd heard it a, a handful of times where, after we started doing them and realized how much of a drag it was, for us to say to management, "Yeah, you know what? Fuck that. We don't want to do these." And he would say, "Well, you know, if you don't do this." 
that region's going to be dead to you and they yeah. won't play your record. Yeah. So it was a little bit of an ultimatum kind right. of a thing. So, yeah, as to expound on that, why radio stations would pick the acts that they did, probably just current playlist at the time. Yeah. And not a whole lot of foresight put into the running order. I mean, I guess from their standpoint, it makes sense because they're doing it from a business perspective. Right, right? or yeah. a playlist perspective. But when audience, you're stuck between yeah. Goldfinger and the Rollins band, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. the heaviest thing you're playing is Cup of Tea, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're fucked. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, you know, and what can you do? You just get up and do your thing. That's all yeah, you can do. Yeah. yeah, you hope that the audiences are smart enough to like different things, or don't have anything heavy enough they can actually yeah. throw at you. Right. There's right. one Black Flag fan out there that's like, you know what, Verve Pipe kind of kicks. Yeah, it. yeah, <laughs> right. So that yeah. The yeah. I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk to Henry us. about this after the fact. <laughs> I met him once at yeah, a uh, at cool. a Boston show. Uh, and again, a weird bill because we followed was not was. It was a WBCN show in Boston. We follow was not was. We get back to the dressing room and Rollins band is up next. Right. And it's this big open area thing where they've got this assortment of dressing rooms inside this building. And Henry's just like stomping around, screaming, rrr, rrr, just yelling, <laughs> yeah. getting pumped up for right. the show. Doing push-ups. And shit. I stepped out of the out of the dressing room to have a smoke, and Henry walks up to me, like two inches from my nose, and screams <laughs> as loud as he could in my face. And all I could think to say was, "Have a good show." <laughs> you know? It's like I couldn't tell you a Rollins song. In fairness, would you want Henry Rollins speaking to you in any other fashion? No, yeah. Well, depending on what the topic covered, yeah, yeah maybe. You and know? this would have been when he was like fully jacked and doing yeah, that. Uh, right. You're a liar. You right. lied. You remember that song? I that was all that over track. MTV. Yeah. <laughs> just, just from the Beavis and Butthead yes, version yeah, alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff he talks about, I could take it or leave it. Yeah, he's definitely a unique character. He's uh, he, sometimes he borders on the Joe Rogan esque. Yeah, oh yeah, he's yeah angle of things, yeah. and other times he nails it. You yeah. know, yeah, you know, it's all right. Not interesting dude. Yeah, for sure. Yep. I catch him pretty constantly in random cameos and shows. Oh yeah, he's in movies. tons of movies. Yeah, so he's acting yeah. a lot. Quite a bit of work yeah. that way. And a nice little yeah, arc yeah. in uh, Sons of Anarchy, which I was. That's like, right. Yeah, that yeah. Was yeah. Yep. yeah. among yeah. many many other things. Yeah. Yeah, I bet you Rollins will come over and do the podcast, dude. <laughs> I would think so. You know? he, didn't he just do a speaking engagement in Grand Rapids? Like he, a year I think or two he did. Ago? Yeah, he, yeah. he does those America. spoken word tours and everything. Right. And yeah, it's it's sort of like like you're saying, it's almost like a live podcast. Get us people it's on like, the phone, Ross. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working there you on it. A Henry Rollins <laughs> spoken word tour probably kicks a pretty significant yeah, amount of ass. Yeah. I would imagine. And talk about zero overhead. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's right. not a drinker, is he? Well, no, I think he's kind of straight you're, edge. You're, I don't know anymore. You're whatever, talking, but, yeah. what, per diem and lodging yeah. and airfare. Yep, yeah. yep. About it. And a brandy glass of brown M&M's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got away from it a little bit, but I want to play this uh, Fountains of Wayne song that you covered. Tell me a little bit about how you did the song, cause, and I'll let you tell the story. Uh, but Okay. Um, my pal Ty Tyler Kuyper had approached me about doing some tracks. Tyler's an old friend of mine. He used to tech for me back in the day. Good guitar player, too. He had approached me about doing some tracks together. I'm like, sure, send me what you got, and I'll put my ear to it, and we'll suss out what it is, and I'll add my twiddly bits to it. Yeah. 
Well, unbeknownst to me, this is a Fountain of Wayne song, and I had no fucking idea. Yeah. Again, with yeah. the whole, I didn't really pay enough attention to my peers at the time. And I didn't find out until the track was done. So when I received this, it was a drum loop, Tyler's vocal, and his uh, his acoustic track, and the Rhodes. I think that Joel Ferguson had recorded and so I put a f- few things on this track. Uh, oh, geez, what, what did I do? I did the bells that you hear halfway through the first verse that kind of mimic the school bell thing. And then I recorded the cello parts and the counterpoint parts as well as the solo, both of which were done with an ebo and a slide. Oh, cool. And the intent was to kind of treat it more like Again, not only a counterpoint part, but just something that was a little more vocal in quality, mm-hmm. where you're not particularly the solo, where you, your pitch is a little over the all over the place with it being a slide. Yeah, but almost kind of trying to make it sound like a theremin. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I love theremin. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So my twiddly bits I kind of are prominent during the second verse of the song and the solo out. But cool. uh, it's just crazy that like. You didn't know this was an Adam Schlesinger song. Not a fucking clue. <laughs> Having had actually worked with the guy. And, and then when I went back to listen to it, to to hear how different it was. Yeah. Because they kind of treated it like, um, oh, geez, for lack of a better way to describe it, they kind of treated it like something that you would have heard in a spy movie with that tremoloed guitar thing. Yeah. You know, yeah, a little, yeah. little yeah. reminiscent of that that double seven kind of thing so yeah well i always thought this is just funny too because this was my favorite song on that record i've heard a lot of people say that about this track and this is the song that's right after stacy's mom on the record it is so they very much went from like you know here's our crazy funny rock song to here's one of our another little small romantic-y in the in the lyrics i don't know it's there's a lot of sentimentality yes there you go that's what it is Yeah. yeah Yeah, so yeah, I've always loved this song, Hack and Sack. So I actually haven't heard it yet, your version of it. Oh, cool. So let's check it out. I'll show myself up. Oh, it's a little faster, I think, than their version. It probably is, yeah. I used to know you when we were young. Yeah. You were in all my dreams. Sounds just like him, actually. Yeah, it's pretty spot on to. Yeah, I was like, Tyler, you wrote this? Fucking yeah. A. Now I see your face in the strangest places, movies and magazines. I saw you talking to Christopher Walken on my TV screen. But I will wait for you. It's Joel singing background. Oh, nice. And Christopher Morris playing drums. To give him a shout out. Is that Rhodes the tribe stuff? Okay. Yeah. And the obligatory 80s cheesy synth. Which I also love. Yeah. Joel played bass? Uh, I think so, yeah. So the cellos and the other nonsense come in here. Sometimes I wonder where you are Probably 
what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. It's almost Hawaiian. Almost. God, that's a great song. So your slide bits there, I mean, that's like a super clean sound you got going on there. Yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot of grit in the signal path with it. What were you What were you doing? You, you just did that at home on your own? Yeah, yeah. Um, I used Reaper as a DAO, um, you know, usual assortment of uh, VST plugins. But I want to say... I want to say I recorded that through Amplitude of all things. Yeah, I've used that on... Yeah, occasionally I'll lean on that. In yeah. fact, I just downloaded the uh, the Black Star St. James suite. Nice, yeah. Which sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah. Keeps getting um, better all the time. It really does. Yeah. And I just recently purchased uh, that Boss IR200 thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And bought a pair of FRFR speakers just to kind of create a little small portable rig. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I... I did one of two things. I either recorded it through the through my pedal board, through the Boss IR, straight into uh, Reaper, or I just did it with VST plugins. So right, yeah, it's right. pretty pretty clean. So no amp, you weren't micing up no, the amp or nothing. No, yeah. um, not for this one. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, I've always thought. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're a pretty big pedal guy, aren't you? You got quite a lot of pedals. I've been known to pull a pedal board or two out yeah. in my day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always kind of loved that stuff. And in fact, I uh, uh, I was approached. Oh, geez, it's going on ten years ago now uh, by a friend of mine named Shannon Near, um, who asked me if I would have any interest in helping him to co-design some stomp boxes. Right. So he and I and another gentleman by the name of Morgan Millennium who Morgan was the singer in the band The Jet Beats, who I'd also worked with. Okay, yeah. Uh, post-verb pipe. Uh, we, well, it was primarily Shannon and I. Morgan did uh, the marketing end of things. Uh, Shannon was the money guy, and I was the guy that sat with the, electric, the electronics engineer yeah. and said, this is what we're thinking for a pedal. This is the way we want it to sound. Let me know when you get a breadboard put together, and I'll yeah. come out and start demoing stuff, and I'll let you know what tweaks we need to make and this sort of thing. So, I mean, we did everything from that end of it, from the R&D initial end of it, to even designing our own enclosures, to making our own knobs. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, using uh, phenolic plastics. Right. Um, you know, basically the same stuff they make Legos out of. 
Um, some of the components, like for our fuzz pedal, for instance, actually came from Russian-Germanian transistors mm-hmm. that were actually in a military bunker yeah. right outside of Chernobyl. <laughs> I swear. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. so, and Shannon, my friend, is like a huge... Just another one of these guys that's smarter than the five smartest people in the room. And he uh, he was the one that tracked these down. And so when they arrived, you know, it's all this Cyrillic writing on the boxes and stuff. Right, and, yeah, yeah. And he had his Geiger counter there. So we opened this thing <laughs> up and he's putting a Geiger counter on the needles going like this. Like, you know, mm. Yeah, so yeah. It's the only should, way to get that sound. We should use those. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. yeah, we did that for a brief while. We had... Four pedals in the line, just basically all gain stage stuff. You know, yeah. fuzz and overdrive, uh, a essentially what would be considered like a rat pedal. Yeah, uh, the overdrive pedal was essentially kind of patterned after an old color sound uh, a color bender pedal, mm-hmm. the old Jeff Beck pedal that had the volume treble bass and master volume on it. Okay, uh, and a compressor pedal. Cool. And we had designs to get into some more modulation type stuff. But as it happened, we ended up having to fire the engineer because the guy could never meet a deadline. Uh, and we were trying to yeah. get stuff ready for Nam, yeah, you know, and all yeah, that. And yeah. yeah, there is so. a real world aspect of that. You can't tinker forever. No, exactly. <laughs> time frame is time frame. Yeah. So we kind of put it on the back burner. Every occasionally, once in a while, Shannon will and I will get together and we'll talk about right bringing the line back. But. Yeah, do you, you know a dude uh, around here named Addison Eilers? You know Addison? Yeah, all? I do. I Just by name. I yeah. think we might have chatted a couple times on Facebook. But he, I know he's, he's got his studio and stuff. Yeah, he just is releasing. He's actually coming on the podcast in a couple weeks. Oh, nice. Um, I played a few shows with him sort of recently, or a show with him, I should say. Um, yeah, I, anyway, he just uh, strikes me as that guy, too. He's very into the electronics and stuff. Whatever. Yeah, I kind of lost track of him via the Facebook thing. Uh, I know we've chatted a couple times, and he seems seems pretty sharp. Yeah. He definitely knows his shit. Yeah, he's, I know he's super into you yeah. know, amp building and guitar building mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Right. Too, so. yeah, yeah, I was just thinking, if you didn't know him, you should reach out, or you could at least connect on that level. And it right. seems like his, you know, he's got this one pedal he's putting out right now or whatever. So, Do you still have, like, the pedals? Oh, still, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, in fact, yeah. I own a bunch of, like, prototype just yeah. naked boards. Right, right. Yeah. That's um, cool. That's and cool. still own... Oh, geez, I want to say, like, number one and number two prototypes of right. stuff that we put together. And I know I flipped one to Pete Dunning yeah, yeah. Uh, from ex-Papa Vegas. Right, right. Yeah. 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 Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very cool. That's a, another world that I didn't get into pedals for a long time because I get, if you haven't noticed, I get super collecty yeah. and I knew that if I got down that road and started buying pedals, it would, you know, I, and I did recently, uh, in the last couple of years, I put together a pedal board. And once mm-hmm. I filled that board up, I had to stop, you know, cause there's something endless. to be said. Yeah. For And then that's a little like the songwriting or the mixing process to where some of the hardest one of the hardest things to know what to do is when to say enough. yeah yeah you know, right 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 i know i had had conversations with a couple guys in the pipe you know talking about older records and them bemoaning 
what we didn't do or should have done. It's yeah. Like, it's like, uh, for fuck's sake, let right. it go. You know? It's, well, the reason why I mentioned it is because I've seen pictures of you that I think you put up of you in the studio fucking surrounded by pedals. Oh, I think I know the, the shot that you're like talking that. about was when we were tracking the freshman and that was, <laughs> that was taken at ocean way. Yeah. Um, and that was that experience of being in that room. And we, I spent a lot of time in that room. That was the that was the B studio. That was where the pets the the pet sounds record okay pretty much was done. That's cool. And Jack, just like all these producer guys, another huge gear whore. Yeah, you know this guy's got you know API strips and yeah. an old desk that they used as a reverb send for right. the pet sounds record or yeah. API strips that came out of Abbey Road. Yeah. you know, yep. with a big. Uh, that half cylinder dial yeah. kind of thing yep. where the fader yep. is that, that yeah. thing that you push That's forward. That's the whole, yeah, those, that was Abbey Road things. Like right. Weird. Uh, I know exactly what yeah. you're talking about. And yeah. just, to, just to kind of soak it all in, yeah. for me, that wasn't any different than like playing, oh God, you know, like playing the Fillmore West or doing the Letterman show yeah. at the Sullivan Theater. Yeah. It was like every corner I could find to stand in and right. soak it up, and I yeah. did. You know, I have, Good for you, because I would have been the same way, yep. man. I love that studio lore and history. And oh, yeah. There's something about, and it's it's so dumb because it's probably not real at all, but there is something about like, oh, they made pet, pet sounds, sounds with this or whatever. Like, I love that shit. Well, <laughs> and the um, the record, we, we, um, we recorded a track uh, for the Avengers movie, not the superhero movie, but the old British television series. The Uma Thurman remake? From Ralph Fiennes. Yes, yeah. yeah. We did that at a studio in Cornwall, England. This was when we had gone over to meet with Chris Kimsey. And, okay. Um, spent a week in this place, and this, this studio was so remote that you could only get there like once a day. When, when the tide came in. You were mentioning that. Because yeah, you had to schlep your gear in by boat. So there was absolutely <laughs> nothing to do. But Supergrass did their first two records there. Right. And XTC, who we were all huge fans of, they, I don't know if you know this, but there was, an, there was a period in, in time with those guys where they weren't going to put any more product out for Virgin because Virgin wasn't promoting them. So they decided that they were going to record a record uh, that was basically kind of a piss take, but a loving piss take, um, stylistically speaking, about all these bands that they used to like in when the 60s. So, you know, early Pink Floyd when Sid was in the band and the, right. and the Small Faces and the Hollies and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they called the band the Dukes of Stratosphere. And they released two records, and then later those two EP slash records were compiled as a uh, as a full length record. But they did their recording there, and as it happened, Brian, we had met Andy Partridge when we were mixing the Villains record. Right, that's cool because he was friends with Jerry Harrison, okay. and Jerry was friends with his. Well, they toured a lot together, the Heads and and XTC back in mm -hmm. the day. Um, and Jerry was friends with, uh, Andy's now wife, Erica, um, long story short, Brian got invited to come to Swindon to spend some time with Andy writing. And this was right around, this was, this would predate the Apple Venus, uh, records that XTC put out Okay, that are very lush and orchestral and all that. And they co-wrote some things together. And nice. one of the tracks that they wrote was a thing called Blow You Away, 
which we ended up recording at Sawmills. Okay. Um, and it wasn't featured in the film, but it's on the soundtrack. Right, right, right. But yeah, really, cool. yeah. really interesting to do that. And the whole recording process of that was crazy too, because <laughs> I had a bunch of gear, like a bunch of vintage marshals carted in to record this thing. Nice. And we couldn't get a tone that we liked for the track. Just <laughs> nothing was sitting. And I don't know if you remember these, but <clears throat> there was a guy named Bruce Zinke who not only established an amplifier company called Zinke Amps, but prior to that, he released these things called Smoky Amps. Okay. Which was either, and the initial run of these things, it was a one-watt amp that was housed in a like a hard pack, like a, like a Marlboro Light hard mm. cigarette pack kind of right. thing input output little speaker in it one watt and you could you could drive a 412 cabinet with one of these okay. things so on a whim after fucking around for days trying to get a tone i said to the engineer why don't we plug one of these in and just run a fuzz pedal through it and put a 57 on it and be done with it yeah that's what ended up on the track right <laughs> after all that nonsense yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy how that that all works yeah yeah you know? So, man, I've kept you for a long time here, but there's, uh, I guess uh, with the third record there, mm -hmm. I guess kind of like what I want to know now is kind of like, where did it go from there? You know, you guys cut this record, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what happened? That was kind of, that was the end of the contract that you had with the yeah. record company. Well, what happened was, uh, the long and short of it was 9-11. Oh, okay. We knew that this was the last contractual record for the label. So uh, because of that, we also knew that we didn't want to get involved uh, with a bunch of tour support money, mm -hmm. only to have it be recoupable. Right. So it was decided that, you know what, let's meet with Amex, the credit card company, and yeah. Saturn, the car company. Yeah. And see if they'd be interested in underwriting the tour. Okay. So that's what we did. We ended up playing a show at uh, the old Silver Dollar Saloon, my old stomping grounds in Lansing. And they came out and they liked what they heard. We had a meeting. They agreed to, yeah, we're really excited about doing this. You know, just promotional stuff. We were kind of letting management handle all the yeah. you know, dotting of I's and crossing of T's kind of thing. And, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, this was prior to 9-11. Just prior to 9-11, apparently, as I remember it, there was a snafu in the legal department involving the artwork. Something had to be sorted out before the record could be released. Yeah, okay. The original release date of the record was 9-11. Okay, yeah. And before that had happened, we pushed it back a couple of weeks. Then 9-11 happened. Right, right. And sadly, Amex loses their world headquarters. Uh, Saturn, like every other major corporation, got cold feet and pulled out. Yeah. So yeah. any success that that record had was a result of menial amounts of regional radio airplay. Right. But our management was savvy enough to... Uh, he had gotten a, a couple of the songs placed in film and television, Mm -hmm. So anything from like, oh, the closing credits to Joe Somebody with Happiness Is playing over top of it. Yeah. To all kinds of shit from the Gilmore Girls and Dawson Creek. And oh, okay. All that okay. kind of stuff. Right, so right, yeah. it kind of, it, it, it enabled us to stay afloat. 
And it also enabled us not to be too much in debt to the label right. when all was said and done. Right, right. Also, with the 9-11 thing, the great Jimmy Eat World Bleed American record came out that day or, it was right. like, or maybe the week before something mm-hmm. because it was called Bleed American. They made him change the name. It was kind of the um, as, as bad as COVID was for the entertainment industry. Yeah. It was kind of our version of that. Right. You know, where everything just kind of shut down for half a second. Fast forward to the spring, late summer, late spring, early summer of the previous year, which would have been 2002. um, We got asked early before we got signed, we did a couple of tracks for a independent label called Aware Records out of Chicago for a guy by the name of Greg Latterman. And this would have been the 10th anniversary of those initial Aware records releases okay and we're talking about bands like uh anything from hootie and the blowfish to train to better than ezra yeah okay a lot of those pseudo kind of not rock bands yeah yeah yeah. uh kind of thing so anyway we got we got asked to re-record a track that we had done for the album uh but an updated version of it right and this Again, this is after the underneath record. So at that point, Brian and Brad or Brian and Donnie weren't speaking with one another. Okay. Okay. So it was a few days before the session, and I wasn't quite sure, aside from the track that we were going to do, which was Spoonful of Sugar, um, which also was on the Pop Smear record, I wasn't quite sure what track or how we wanted to approach this track, you know, how we were going to change it. So I called Brian one day and said, call Donnie because I'm out of loop. This is all Donnie's thing. So couldn't get a phone call back from Donnie. Get into the studio. Donnie's brilliant, quote unquote, idea was to treat this track like a puddle of mud song. <laughs> yeah, okay. And I thought, well, A, why do we want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> and B, why the fuck do we want to do that? Yeah, they're not my favorite group of that era. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's one thing to ask a band to maybe rethink an arrangement or supplant some different instrumentation into a pre-existing song to change it. Yeah. But why do we want to chase around some band that no one fucking likes? Yeah, yeah. What's the point? So anyway... We ended up cutting the track, the rhythm tracks, and it came time to do some additional overdubbing. And the engineer and myself and Donnie met at GRCC. At that point, John Frazier, the guy who was engineering, who was our front of house guy and the guy that engineered our independent records, uh, he was working there as a as a gotcha. as a prof. So he had access to their recording facilities. So I showed up and started tracking this thing and i've got donnie there who god love the guy but has a tendency to he wants to work out of your back pocket all the time and you know tell you what to play and how to play it and all that right and it finally got to the point where it's like look love it or not i'm in this band for a reason and if i need anyone else to tell me how to approach a part and have my ideas thoroughly dismissed, then you either A, need to put a chart in front of me, B, hire a union session player, yeah, or, yeah. Sh- or C, shut the fuck up and leave and let us get on with this. Right. So he chose the latter. 
he left. Frazier and I got the rest of the work done. About two weeks after that, I go down to check the mail one morning, and there's a CD in it. And it's the version of the song that we had cut. So I get all excited, and I put it on. Four bars into it, and I'm like, this is not me playing on this. Who was playing on this? So I I made a couple phone calls. Come to find out, a mutual friend of ours, who I won't name uh, for sake of his anonymity, but uh, he got a phone call, and Donnie had said, hey, look, I'm working on this demo. Not a verve pipe track. I'm working on this demo. Okay. And would you be interested in coming down and helping me out? And he was like, sure. Right, right. Happy to do it. Yeah. Gets down there, realizes what it is, and he's like, I can't do this. This is this is AJ's domain. You know, I don't want any part of this. Wow. You know? Yeah. And Donnie was like, no, no, he's cool with it. Uh, so he's just sort of lying. I wasn't yeah. cool with that at right. all. Yeah. Okay. So once I found all this out, my next phone call was to Doug Buttleman, our manager. And I said, look, yeah. I'm done. Uh, this is it. Uh, yeah. This is the last straw, one of many. Mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with this anymore. So two months goes by and I get a phone call. And I was at that time, I just took a gig at Rit Music for something to do because yeah. I was bored. This is when they were on Division Street. Right, right, right. I get a phone call from Doug's wife, Mara, who worked with him in the office. Hi, Mara. This is a uh, hi, AJ. This is Mara. How are you doing? Good. And I'm thinking, why the fuck are you calling me here? Yeah. And uh, she's like, so I just wanted to ask you if you're available for dates on such and such a day. And I'm like, I don't know if you're aware of this, but your husband probably should have told you that I've quit the band. And she's like, what? And acted all surprised. And I'm like, yeah, I left the band about a month and a half ago. Well, no one bothered to tell me this. I'm so, well, then you might want to have a conversation with your husband. Yeah. And it goes silent for a second. And she's like, well, you do realize that the band has a bunch of bills that they owe money for, right? I said, yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment. I wouldn't have thought otherwise. And she's like, well, what are you prepared to do about it? And I'm like, come again? And she repeated herself. And I said, okay, let me ask you this. Are you invoicing Brad Vanderart currently? Meaning our bass player who left. And she's like, no. I said, well, when you start invoicing Brad, feel free to do the same to me. Is there anything else you need help with? Wow. And that was kind of the last conversation that I had with them. Yeah. And I never did speak with them again, although I got corralled back into the fold in 2007 to do a handful of shows. And I prefaced it with, look, I'm more than happy to help you out. The guitar player that they hired, apparently, they had a falling out with, and I don't know the details and don't care to. Yeah. But... I said, I'd be more than happy to help you out until you can find somebody. Right, right, right. Well, this went on for a year. Yeah. And in the interim, uh, uh, the band was always doing these Christmas shows at the intersection. Mm -hmm. And so there was some press involved with it. And I did one of the interviews. Brad did, or Brian did one. Donnie did the other. So wait, well, I'm sorry. Was Donnie playing in the band? Yeah, Donnie was still in the band. Oh, okay. Because yep. I thought, I, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Go on. And um, so I had spoken with Brian and, and uh, Donnie both about this and said, look, I'm happy to help you out, but I just want you to know this is a stopgap measure until you can find somebody else. Right, right. So again, this goes on for about a year where I'm doing dates and fly dates and shows and shit with him. And Donnie's talking to me about how much money they owe and i'm like why do i give a shit about this? yeah yeah so as it happened they got approached to do a uso 
tour, okay. do a string of dates, which included shows in Hawaii, Spain, and Italy. And I'm like, okay, what does it pay? And when I was quoted the rate of pay, it was the same rate of pay I just made to drive to Toledo mm-hmm. and do a gig with them there. And I'm like, okay, look, not for nothing, but A, I've been to Hawaii and to, to Italy, and there's no way I'm getting on a plane for the same amount of money that you just paid me to schlep my shit to Toledo and back. It's <laughs> right. not going to happen. I'm yeah. not trying to hold anybody's feet to the flame, but it's not happening for this kind of money. Right. So long story short, we had one more date. No one was talking to each other. Uh, yeah. uh, Donnie and I got into a huge verbal dust up in the parking lot. Right. Where I basically told him to fuck off, eat shit, whatever I yeah. said. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of the end of it. Gotcha. You know, Donnie and I have subsequently started speaking again. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, about the only person in the band I don't speak with any longer has been Brian. Oh, okay, really? Yeah, yeah. Any particular reason? I mean, you don't have to get into anything you don't want. Well, uh, when Brian found out, once I, quote-unquote, rejoined the band, what I was being paid, he and I had a sit-down one day. We met for a, a dinner or a lunch and this was largely due in part to problems that I was having with Donnie again. Okay. And when he found out what I wasn't being paid, he at least put on a show of acting incensed by it. Oh, you know, okay. that, oh this isn't fair. I'm going to have a talk with him. Well, he obviously never did. Right. You know, that kind of thing. So... So it was like, uh, uh, not to go too deep into what was yeah. like Donnie's wife, like, was she like managing the band at that point or something? Or like, No, no. What? Doug Buttleman was still the manager. Okay. okay. Uh, Mara Buttleman, Doug's wife, was the person that had called me and asked me if I was oh, still available for okay. dates. Okay. I, I was confused yeah. there. No, I'm no, sorry. no. Yeah, I, yeah. I probably didn't do a great yeah. job in the explanation. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, that was kind of my... Uh, my yeah, departure so that was, from that whole thing. That was, I remember when you had rejoined the band there mm-hmm. or whatever for a minute there. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, well, it was this big yeah. article in, in the review. Yeah, oh, we're yeah. so happy to have AJ back in the band, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and it was just yeah. like, insert stroking motion here. <laughs> yeah, right, right, it wasn't right, about right, that right. at all. Right. You know? Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Right. Yeah, so, okay, so you're not like, yeah, I was going to ask you kind of what your relationship was with Brian still, if you guys were still, you know. Hey, actually, yeah. I'm yeah. closer to Lou, the Lou Moose, yeah, the guy yeah. who replaced me sure. than yeah. I am with anybody else in that band. Great, He's a great guitarist, too. A monster yeah. guitar yeah. player. He actually uh, swapped out some pickups for me, too. <laughs> oh, did he? <laughs> yeah, he yeah every time he posts something about doing a gig, I always have to chime in and call him a sucker. Yeah. <laughs> Even after all this time. Gotcha. And honestly, he's gotcha. probably been in the band longer than I was in the band. Yeah, which you know? is, yeah, I get that too it's crazy mm-hmm. yeah yeah but he seems to have a good working relationship with brian so yeah. more power to him you that's know? cool yeah. yeah i talked about it with joel a little bit i did see the verve pipe uh it was whatever probably four years ago now or something mm-hmm. it was at uh it's at 20 Row. yeah uh, actually mm-hmm. I and, uh, show. Nope. yeah and uh you know it was it was you know it was fun it was still great it was still mm-hmm. it was fun to see you know uh them play those songs and whatever right. you know so yeah yeah so yeah, man. I guess I appreciate that rundown because it was also curious, like what happened. How did it stop? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, it's not really like a clear story. And everybody's got their side of oh, things sure. or whatever. Sure, you know? and so. you know, to to that point, you know, there I I could have remembered it incorrectly. I don't believe I did. Yeah, yeah. But 
Yeah, it was just at that point for me. It was just it was enough. Yeah, I hear you. you know, happy to help you. him out, but yeah, yeah. You know, walking through O'Hare and listening to Donnie bitch about how much they're in debt. Yeah, it's like you know what? It's this no is a staunch reminder of what prompted me to leave. Right, the place. right, right, right. Yeah. right. Yeah, and of course, I mean, he's not playing with them anymore or whatever either. No, and, no, he got bounced. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, my friend uh, Todd Long was playing for a minute. There. Oh, you know Todd. I well. I know him a little bit. He played in bands again with my brother and Rick Beam and these guys. Uh, what, oh, what bands did he play? I think they were called Five Apple Rush. Oh for yeah, a okay. while there. Yep. Yeah, and they they had so many different bands and names and stuff. But I'm pretty sure that's. I've what done it a was few dates with yeah. Todd too. I I yeah. did some pickup dates with Molly when they were yeah, still around when sure. Pete had left the band. Right. Played some dates with him. And okay. I yeah. want to see uh, John Koshans, Molly's bass player who I was in a band called John Henry and the Barons with. We were kind okay. of like a pseudo-alternative country, Americana-ish mm-hmm. kind of thing. I think yep. John played, or uh, Todd played with him. Right, yes, yeah, yeah, yep, I believe that. As well did. as the yep. Dutch Henry thing. Dutch Henry, that's yep. really what I was thinking of, yep. yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, with Greg Greg Miller and John Merchant. Right, yeah, yeah, Todd's Mitchwood. a good dude. Yeah, yeah, I, I haven't seen him in forever, and I'm not. I'm not sure he would even know who I am on the street running into Johnny Merchant. No, uh, Todd Long. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he'd remember. Todd remembers everybody. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm going to tell him about doing this podcast. Yeah, he's, let, he's oh, bound to remember you. Well, I got to get Todd to tell him I want him to come on. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, actually, I don't know if he's back in Michigan. Last I heard, he was in Florida. Oh, okay. I'd, he's yeah, no traveling. Idea. His wife is in the National Guard. So oh, okay. Kind of. He's been. Right, doing right. daddy duties with her yeah. with her children and yep. yeah, he was a killer drummer. He always did that shit. Where he'd always like stand up and do like tricks. He's a fun and guy. Shit. Yeah. yeah, I always like talk <laughs> yeah, too. It's good. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right, I mean, we've done like beyond three hours at this point. Have we really? Think. Yeah, I mean, like oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, we have. I literally there's there's more I would ask you about. I love the road stories. Um, it's kind of the same thing with Joel. Where like uh, I want to talk to him again more, just strictly about like gear and stuff too. Yeah. You know, and like yeah, we never really other, touched on that either. I know. There's just so much that. I want to know. Ask you know. me who the coolest rock star I ever met was. All right, let's hear it. Who's the coolest rock star you ever met? Lemmy. Oh, that's Without a good question. one. Yeah, yeah. I hung out with him for about four or five hours. No shit. So you really hung out with him, man. We talked about everything from World War II history to him <laughs> roading for Hendrix oh, as really? a 16-year-old kid. I to didn't know that. Last, last portion of the evening we spent together and you have to envision this. We just come from a dinner, so I've got this garish Carnaby Street striped pinsuit suit on. <laughs> and we walk into the rainbow, and I see Lemmy playing this Pac-Man. He's got a leather <laughs> vest and no shirt on, and I'm fanboying the fuck out. Lemmy playing Ms. Pac-Man is the greatest visual. <laughs> and, and no one from the band picked up on who he was. Yeah. I'm like, holy fuck, that's Lemmy. Yeah. And, of course, they shame me into going to getting me to buy him a drink. And I'm like, I don't want to bother him. Oh, To the point it. where it's like, yeah. finally, I leaned over to the bartender. I'm like, look, I'm sorry. What is let me drink vodka cranberry all right so give me a double and give me whatever it was i was drinking probably a jack on the rocks or something and so i saunter over to him i'm like hi mr lemmy can right, i right. do you mind if i sit with you it's hilarious that he's drinking vodka cranberry and couldn't have been a nicer guy yeah. just an absolute gentleman evening ends with us kind of sitting there after we've kind of talked each other's ears off yeah and in walks it's last call in walks this college group of kids and they're all wearing sweatpants and hoodies and backwards baseball cap shirts yeah. on and he leans over to me he says you know aj 
I remember a time when, when I was that age, when we used to go out, we used to make it a point to dress up and look good. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, do you even have an, uh, a mirror? And, you <laughs> yeah, know. No but anyway, we we hung out, did our thing. I thanked him, but it was, it's really gracious for him to do that. And right. got up and left. And right as we're walking out the door, I hear somebody screaming my name. And here he walks, and he's given me his card. Yeah. And he's like, next time you're in Los Angeles, come look look me up. We'll hang out. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, fuck, okay. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. I, I must have been grinning like an idiot. We flew home the next day. I get on the plane, and at that time, I was carrying a wallet. And yeah. what does my dumbass do but take my wallet out, and I put it in the in the visor in front of me in the seat, yeah. and I leave it on the fucking plane. So you lost Lemmy's number? The only thing I was oh, worried man. about, not even my driver's <laughs> no, license or my, yeah. my credit cards, was Lemmy's car. For sure. I just Ooh. broke my fucking heart. That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. Just awful. Well, uh, R.I.P. Lemmy. He was definitely the man. Yeah. R.I.P. Adam Schlesinger as well. Yeah. He's a huge fan of John Holbrook. And yeah. Everybody else has departed the coil. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah. So, yeah, man, we'll definitely have you come back on. Fucking maybe you and Joel come in and fucking shoot the shit. I want to definitely talk yeah, to you about there gear. You go. That'd and, be you know, fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a huge Verve Pipe fan. I'm a huge fucking Papa Vegas fan. Any excuse to hang out with Joel is fine by me. That's what I'm saying. I was yeah. lucky enough to get Joel to play on one of my records. He did a little guitar oh, yeah. solo for me and stuff there. Too, Actually, so. you have to play me that. Yeah, yeah, well, fucking got to get your ass on there. So. Yeah, it was really. a it was a big thing of me trying to get Joel to come on. I kept uh, fucking harassing him at RIT. Yeah. I'd pop in and be like, where do you come to come on the podcast, yeah. man? Come on, come on the podcast. Was so he was he reticent at first to do so? No, or? it was just, you know, scheduling or whatever. It's okay. Just, you know, no, not at all. Joel, you know, so. Joel's a really humble guy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he has a hard time. Well, maybe not a hard time, but he's he's always reluctant to want to talk himself up. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was interesting to hear that pod too. To yeah. to listen to to hear these stories again yeah. that I'd heard years ago about right. their England experience and all that. Yeah, but, you yeah. Know. It's super fascinating. Yeah, Joel's the man. Yep. And yeah, no shout out. I'm sure he's listening. Yeah. <laughs> if he's not, I'm coming to your house for Joel. sure. We're showing up yeah. knocking. We know. Where all right, live. man. Let me freaking let you go. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Right. I appreciate the time you've given Thank us. Thank you here. both. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Hey, Super fun, man, and, and we'll have you back on to talk more shit about yeah. gear, and I hear more road stories and all that stuff, man. I'm endlessly fascinated. So. Nice. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for coming in. Anytime. All right. Peace, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.